2: An action-packed show coming your way for the next four hours. Buckle up, because we are tackling everything from Wyatt Earp and casino gambling to the war in Ukraine to the World Series to uh, the uh, to, to, to the elections coming up. You name it; it's going to be all be covered in the next four hours. This is going to be something. But I want to begin by asking you a a question. The question is this. Whatever your profession is, whether you work in a grocery store, whether you work at a radio station, whether you work in a politician's office, whatever the case may be, do you think in 2022, in modern society, is it okay to date the boss, meaning your supervisor? Maybe your direct supervisor or maybe somebody a couple of notches above your direct supervisor. Is it okay to run into someone at the office? because after all human beings are human beings and you strike up a friendship you strike up maybe something more than a friendship and you decide that the two of you want to start dating now we know that there's nothing against there's no law against dating one's boss but certain companies have policies in place that restrict bosses and managers from dating subordinate employees but many don't these policies are in place to prevent an employee from being pressured into a relationship, and I'm poised to talk about this because my wife and I just finished watching Ted Lasso, and uh, I don't want to give anything away if you haven't seen season two yet. It's quite good, but there's one uh, character that ends up date. I'll save the genders because I really don't want to give anything away that ends up dating the boss, and I'll save you the characters. I'll save you the subplot and these two characters are initially very reluctant to go forward with this relationship even though they're very much fond of one another they are attracted to one another and they want to go forward with dating one another the lone the lone hesitancy that they both have is the fact that one person is the other person's boss not a direct boss but a couple of notches above Uh, Where they fall in the totem pole. And it reminded me in some respects of the the office, you know, the, the TV show The Office, which has all sorts of relationships in the workplace that are boss employee. You have Michael and his boss, Jan. You have uh, Michael and Holly. Holly is, of course, she reports directly to Michael. Worked out well in their case. Didn't work out so well with Michael and Jan. You have a number of other cases, including, very briefly, some people may not remember this, but you have Aaron, who was the receptionist, dating Gabe. And you heard both Aaron and Gabe Talk about this when they, you know, if you're not familiar with The Office, it's kind of a pseudo-reality show where they do these confessionals, where they look at the camera and talk about their feelings about what's happening on the show.
3: I started dating Aaron this summer. It has been, in a word, exquisite.
2: Gabe is
4: awesome. He's accomplished so much career-wise and height-wise. Thank God he's my boss, because I would not have said yes
5: to a first date. If I didn't have to, but
2: it's been great. Now, I think that attitude that Aaron expressed there is precisely why some people view dating the boss as a bad thing. I'd love to hear your stories if you have dated the boss or if you've been the boss and dated someone else. Um, Is it okay in this day and age? Has it ever been okay? how have the times changed? Is it Even if it's morally okay, ethically okay, even if you cross every T and dot every I, let uh, HR know that you guys are having a relationship, you go through all the bells and whistles, you bring your HR representative on your third date with you, you have an HR representative in the bedroom with you, is it unwise? Um, also, I'd love to know... If somebody is in a relationship like this, and I've never been in a relationship like this, I don't think, have I? No. I mean, I uh, I think I've only worked for one woman as a direct supervisor, and she was very attractive, but uh, we never – nothing ever materialized uh, romantically. Uh, Not that either of us were trying. I think she was married or engaged at the time. But if you have been in a relationship like this, I'm curious if you have any advice – for both the boss and the employee. Additionally, if you're in the workplace now, I'd love to know how you think things have changed over the years from 30 or 40 years ago. You know, I'll tell you, in my father's case, my, th- my father is married to his third wife, my stepmother. She used to work for my father. and so And they've been married more than 30 years. So it has worked out for them. You know who else worked for my father? His second wife. Uh, wh- who's my mother. So uh, clearly they have at least one son, and uh, it worked out somewhat well for them. I don't know how he met his first wife, but it wouldn't shock me if he met her at work. I don't know the story there. But the reason I say that is not because my father was some creepy guy prowling around the office break room looking for dates it's because my dad was in when he was working he was a workaholic he would spend all of his time at the office working and it's not as if he could go out and uh, meet people at singles bars and so forth so you end up entering into relationships with people that you run into i don't think either uh, i don't want to speak for them but i don't think either my mother or my stepmother ever felt coerced or anything like that i'd love so it can work in the whole me too era in the sexual harassment era, there's all sorts of other considerations, legal considerations, uh, questions about favoritism. You know, I, I can't tell you how often I hear that in the workplace whenever someone gets promoted or gets an opportunity at some job or another. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about a hospital or a radio station or a politician's office. There's always – and obviously that means someone doesn't get the promotion or someone doesn't get the raise. And the person that doesn't get the raise or the promotion, I so often hear them say, oh, that's because so-and-so is sleeping with so-and-so. And And I don't know whether it's true or not, but it does create these allegations of, of favoritism. And if we are in a place where it's no longer appropriate to date the boss, what does that say about society? Is that a good place that we're in societally or a poor place? What do you think? 800-848-9222. I'm particularly interested if you've been in this situation, either as an employee or as a manager or as something above a manager, whatever the case may be, and how it might have worked out. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to um, Al in Yonkers. Hello, Al.
6: Good morning, Frank.
7: Uh, Frank, I just wanted to say I guess it's possible I'm in the minority here. And maybe I'm old-fashioned, but I would probably say it was unwise to get in a relationship with a a superior in the office. And I'll give you an example. I don't know the whole details, but not too long ago, the uh, person who used to run the uh, CNN, uh, he had gotten in a relationship with uh, one of his subordinates in the company, and it it caused such a backlash that – he had to give up his uh, leadership position in that role, so I just personally would would uh, say it was uh, not a good.
2: Thing to do. Well, I think that's the conventional wisdom, right? And I think yeah. if you, um, I, I think if you're looking to avoid uh, messiness or problems, yeah. the safe thing to do is always to avoid this. Uh, and uh, Tom Likas always had this as one of his his rules that uh, unless you care nothing whatsoever about your job, never even think of um, getting involved romantically uh, with anybody that works in your office. And uh, it makes sense, especially if you think about the situation you mentioned, relationships end all the time. So let's say you uh, start dating your uh, receptionist, or let's say you're a a, a manager and you start dating a I don't know, a salesman or something. And then uh all of a sudden you guys decide that you're not the right fit for one another. Does that um neg the, does that relationship ending spill over into the workplace? On the yes, one absolutely. hand, it's yeah. difficult to see how it doesn't. Um yes. uh, you know, uh, spill over at least to some extent. Al, thank you. You know, but sometimes it doesn't. You know, I I worked at another radio station where the boss, uh, everyone was single at the time, no affairs or anything. Uh the boss dated um, someone that worked there and then they broke up and they remained friendly but then she still works there and they still have a professional relationship. So I guess in that instance they were at least mature enough to have that kind of situation go on. But I think that's the exception rather than the rule. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Uh, talking about whether or not it's okay or unwise to date your boss. Whatever the genders are, it could be same-sex couple or whatever the case may be, 800-848-9222. Mark is in Westchester. Hello, Mark.
8: Yes, sir. Uh I've been involved with this. Once I left the uh Guardian Angels, I went into the private security business, and we had a security officer working... For a specific company and the person that worked for Human Resources uh, had a crush on this security officer and invited him to leave his post to have breakfast and lunch in her office. It became almost nepotism and the officer did not realize the mistake he was making mm. and both of them were were fired. Frank, it doesn't work. There's always going to be some type of favoritism. It, it just it's a horrible situation and it doesn't belong in the workplace, mm-hmm. especially if you are a franchise working to secure another company that you don't specifically work for. It's well,
2: a bad idea. Let's say, Mark, and I, I appreciate you sharing that, and I appreciate your, your perspective, and it's difficult to disagree with you, but let's say you have just fallen head, head over heels with a woman that um, works in your office, that you feel that this is going to be the woman that you marry, this is going to be the mother of your children, and it absolutely is uh, kismet that the two of you uh, are going to be together— what are you supposed to do? Just say, all right, I'm not going to pursue this relationship at all?
8: No. I would leave my current position mm-hmm. as as either or the person that works at human resources or the security officer. So it's clean and easy. Uh, otherwise, people are going to think there is favoritism. And I have seen it. Like I told you, he's having uh, breakfast inside there, lunch, and the other officers are complaining about it. And, look, if your heart wants what the heart wants, don't you don't make your money. You don't make your honey where you make your money. <laughs> My dad told me that a long time ago. Don't uh, make your honey where you make your money.
2: Well, thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. I'd also love to hear from some people that this has worked for. Uh, that have had a situation where they have um, been in a relationship with a subordinate or their boss, and it's worked out well. Maybe they got married. Maybe they had children. Maybe uh, they just had a pleasant relationship for a while, and it didn't upset their work-life balance. If you're someone that's able to, that's had this work well for you, I'd love to know what strategies you'd recommend for someone like these characters on Ted Lasso that are hesitant to go forward with this kind of thing. 800-848-9222. Donald is in Yonkers. Hello, Donald.
8: Yeah, Frank, I want to ask you a question. Um, What's the deal with the legality of this?
2: Well, um, there's nothing illegal, as long as no one is coerced, there's nothing illegal about dating uh, a subordinate. I, as I said, some companies have policies against this, but mm. most companies, I think, are are. I mean, depending on the size of the company, most companies are pretty silent about it.
9: Hmm.
2: No,
10: because my my father was an engineer at CBS Television for years, and in fact, he he, he started with the network back in the 1940s. And I went into news work, but I could never work for CBS.
2: Well, I don't understand. You couldn't work for CBS because your father worked there?
10: Yep. They were they, they wouldn't allow
2: relatives. Yeah, well, so that's not a law though. That's a company policy. Well, it's a firm so that,
10: policy, right. Do you right. think that's fair, though? No, or? I don't.
2: I don't. Why should you be discriminated mm. against because uh, because your father was an engineer there? What if you want a job in a totally separate field that has nothing to do with anything that your father did? I don't think that's fair at all. I, I think uh, I, I think quite the opposite. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. John is in Freehold. Hello, John.
1: Hey, Frank. Um, so I would say generally it depends on the maturity level of the of the people so you know um but i've done i've been in a relationship with somebody with the boss I worked with and uh it, the thing is you have what, what to, field when you're at
2: work, what field were you in at the time
1: uh retail retail a, yeah but um the trick the trick is when you're at work. You don't act like, uh, you don't, you know, you don't flirt, you don't do anything, you work. You act like, you know, she's the manager, you're the... Uh, right, you uh, got to keep advocate. it professional. Yeah. And then when you're, old, when you're done with work, you know, you, you don't know, what they say, uh, you don't crap where you eat.
2: Right, right, right. I, I think that's good advice, but uh, like so much of um, good advice that happens to be cliche, it's it's a lot easier to say that than to live up to it, right? I mean... Oh, uh, yeah, yeah,
1: one one time I dated a girl, and uh, she ended up leaving the, her like quitting the job. It was just a, it was a weird breakup, and it's just awkward to see like uh, somebody and to work with them like, just straight up quit. You know?
2: Yeah, John, you're breaking up a little bit there, but I, I appreciate your perspective. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Linda is on Long Island. Hello, Linda.
11: Hi, Frank. Hi. Uh, I got my job, when I was younger, um, I got my job, um, the boss told me that um, there was a young man, we were both young, a young man um, also applying for the position, and we were equal, uh, equally qualified. So, you know, no, neither one of us was better. Um but he said to me, he knew I wasn't married, and he asked me, "Are you engaged?" And I said, "No." And then oh boy. I knew he liked me. I knew, yeah, I knew he liked me. And I thought he, you know, he was very nice. But I wasn't thinking about going out with him. He did tell me um, that he was going through a divorce. Um, so I knew that was, you know, that was a big, you know, basis of his decision, but, you know, because it's not like, you know, we're equal. So he at the end, you know, the interview. He knew I I had a job before that, and I was qualified. Um, so I knew what I was doing. He said to me, "Okay, um, you have the job." Um, so and, do you, do you
2: thought he hired you because you were unmarried and not engaged, and he he, view, me. he yeah, viewed he you as a romantic. He
11: wasn't. Yeah, but he wasn't. Um, you know, disqualifying him. You know what I mean? Um, it was a personal decision. He could hire either one. We were equal. That's the point. No, I get it. I, I get. Like it. I wasn't less than. You know what I mean? So did you so, end up?
2: Did you end up dating this fella?
11: Okay, this is what happened. Um, you know, we became friends. Okay, he was very, very nice, and um, we went out to lunch one day. You know, during the day, people knew about it. In fact, a couple of females wanted to be my best friend because they thought it would help them because Uh they knew about about us. And somebody else came to me and said, you know, they're talking a lot. We only went to lunch. We didn't go out. You know what I mean? Just lunch. And we came back, but people knew about it. But it was casual, like that. And then um, he saw, I mean, he asked me out after that regular date and but he thought that it was so hard, it was so difficult. Um, the pressure, he said to me, I see the pressure on you. I worked every day and I was worried that, you know, people thought that was the only reason, you know what I mean? Just because, you know, the situation was very bad. Um, Cause people, you know, people, somebody came to me and said, you know, people are talking and nothing happened. We weren't dating. You know,
2: but yeah, so, some, so in some he ways, felt bad. right, some ways yeah, you were yeah. bearing the brunt of being in a relationship without actually being in one.
11: Exactly. Interesting. Exactly. Even though people talk and people, you know, people gossip and and all kinds of things. Nothing was going on. But it was obvious, you know, it was an obvious thing. I mean, we're friendly, that's all. Sure. No, I get it. The fact is, we went out to lunch once, and that was it. uh, Everybody, that was
2: a big deal. And thank you, Linda. No, there have been women that uh, that I've worked with that um, uh, we've never had anything but a platonic relationship, but there's always people chirping and trying to claim that there's something going on with this woman and that woman. Uh, But, uh, you know, that's the problem with gossip, is it's just so... Hurtful. There's some people I work with now that are just hopeless gossips, and uh, it really does. I think it says more about them than the kind of people that they're gossiping about. Anna is in Washington Heights. Hello, Anna.
5: Hi, Frank. I think it's crazy if you get involved with somebody at work, particularly your your boss. Your workmates are going to hate you if you ever get a promotion. Everybody's going to think that's why. Nobody wants, not even you, want to be playing kissy face little winks and hints of what you're going to do at night. Um, If that's the case, nobody will ever forget it, ever. It will trail you. It will follow you when you go on. People will never, they'll ever respect you. I think you should, as a professional, never even take that stuff into work. I don't think you should ever have it in your mind. To me, somebody I work with, if it's a man, they're just like my sister's husband. I don't even Uh think about it. I would never think about it.
2: What I
3: do you do What would you
2: do then anna uh, and i don 't know what profession you are in or were in, but what would you do if um, uh, your boss or even because you you said not just uh, and not just a supervisor but even a coworker let 's say a coworker or your boss that was a male asked you out on a date, and clearly had romantic designs on you, Uh, a lot of people would be uh, afraid, kind of like that clip of Aaron that I played, that maybe if you rebuff a boss's advances, that 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 might, at least on some level, work against you in the workplace. How would you handle that? First of all, I would pretend like it was a joke.
12: Mm -hmm.
5: Oh, ha-ha, aren't you funny? You don't mean that. I would not. Take it seriously, I mean, I would take it seriously, but I wouldn't to them um if it proceeded further, like somebody like put a hand on my shoulder, supposedly innocently, I would pick up the hand and take it off, which I've done if it got any further, I'd quit
2: I mean, would really
5: threatening and oh yeah. See, that's that, that's such a shame, and
2: that's one of the areas where I think the Me Too movement has made some strides, where I think maybe more women, uh, and, and men for that matter, might be more comfortable uh, reporting it, that kind of conduct. It's
5: not, it's not worth it. You don't want, you don't want your private stuff in your, in, your pers- in your work life. You just don't. You want to be a professional.
2: Yeah, uh, well said, and Anna. Thank you. I want to squeeze in one more call here before we talk uh, Wyatt Earp with uh, – with, uh, with Mark Warren. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. Gino is on Staten Island. Hello, Gino.
9: Hey, how are you? I love your show. Thank I you. I listen to you all the time. You're uh, great. Oh, that's awfully nice you of, of you.
2: Th- thank you. Yeah, Appreciate
9: listen, uh, bringing up the uh, subject about what you're saying, I respect everybody that, you know, want, might want a date in the workplace. But nowadays, it's just you got to be very careful. I mean, things can happen. Uh, women could uh, accuse you. It's just so scary these days because, you know, it it can lead into big problems. But I've been in retail for like 20-something years. The biggest place of stuff like that is at a supermarket. I've seen it happen every day. Who's going out with who, no matter what gender. But these companies today, majority of them have the policy, like you stated. It's... uh, it's the small companies, and well, that's like what I was going to uh, say. I,
2: I feel like it's less common if there's a small business, right? If you have a really? uh, a, a small a, t- a, a local store, I don't think it would be unusual for the manager to date a waitress, for instance. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, Absolutely. my my cousin. I think my cousin uh, Diana um, is is a waitress, and she works for a, a large restaurant franchise. And they um, – th- th- I think the manager was um, – is it, it her boyfriend. And I think they either had to keep it secret because the company had a policy or they actually transferred one of them to another, another restaurant because the company had this policy. Gino, thank you. Um, we'll continue this discussion a little bit later if you care to. But meantime, we are airing in Alaska this week, right? So I did a lot of research into Alaska. Do you know who one of the most famous Alaskans in history is? Wyatt Earp. Isn't that wild? Now, when you think of Wyatt Earp, what do you think of? You think of the West. You think of Dodge City. You think of Tombstone. And maybe you think of Hollywood. You don't necessarily think of Alaska. But uh, we're going to get into Wyatt Earp's life and times separating the myth from the mythical with Someone that knows Wyatt Earp better than anybody, Mark Warren. Mark Warren has written a series of award winning biographies on the life and times of Wyatt Earp. And I think you're going to be really interested in our conversation straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
2: of where have all the cowboys gone? Well, when you think of the cowboy era in American history, there are a couple of names that immediately come to mind. There's outlaws, famous outlaws like uh, Billy the Kid, right? And there are famous lawmen like Wyatt Earp. I don't think there is a more famous Western lawman that represents that era of late 19th century America, more more than Wyatt Earp. And someone who has studied uh, the life and times of Wyatt Earp has been Mark Warren. He's an educator and an author who's written a series of award-winning biographies on the life and times of uh, Wyatt Earp. Mark, thanks so much for joining me on the radio.
13: Glad to be with you,
2: Frank. Mark, I I was researching um, a little bit about you in preparation for our interview Did I read this correctly, that you actually teach people survivalist skills based on uh, skills that the Cherokee employ? Did I read that correctly? That's correct. That is wild. How did you get into doing that?
13: Well, I think it comes from uh, just an innate love of the forest since I was a little boy, and that just grew as I got older. And the more that I studied the forest and wanted to understand it, uh, the more I understood that I needed to study the people who had once lived in it, this very land that I live in now in Georgia, but they had lived it very intimately and on a daily basis, all of their needs came from the forest. So that's what fascinates me is that today, we think of the forest as a little bit of a an unknown. I think most people do. And maybe foreign ground, and whereas it was the everyday venue of life on Earth. And everything that's needed is still
2: out there. That's that's terrific. What sparked your interest in Wyatt Earp? You've clearly spent a great deal of time and, uh, I would say, years researching and writing about Wyatt Earp. What sparked your interest initially?
13: Well, the first thing that happened was that I happened to pick up a book when I was seven years old, and read it, and from that moment on, I was hooked. What I did not know was that the biography that I read was actually highly fictionalized, as were many biographies of the early 1900s, to give um, especially American youth somebody to look up to as a hero. So when I learned that the life of Wyatt Earp, as I had uh Discovered it in that book. When I learned that that was full of uh, untruths, I was just so curious to want to find out what this man really was like.
2: He's one of those historical figures, almost like uh, Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett, George Washington, where uh, there there is a lot of fiction in their biographies. I'm wondering why is that the case? I mean, Wyatt Earp's life is so uh, interesting and so impressive in its own right. Why have so many writers and film directors and uh, storytellers felt the need to add fictional elements to the life of somebody like Wyatt Earp?
13: That's a very good question. I don't know that anybody could answer that perfectly, but it's it was the trend of that time that book that i mentioned to you came out in 1931 and at the time every serious biographical writer was known to uh, employ hyperbole and to really create little adventures in in the lies that they were writing their main thrust was to sell books And they felt like they could write in an unaccountable way, that nobody could check them on the the history lesson. And, of course, that can't be done today. Everybody's on top of the research, and so you can't get away with that. But that was just a trend in those days.
2: All right. um, A lot of folks know of Wyatt Earp through the cinematic portrayals of uh, terrific actors like uh, Kevin Costner.
14: Bartender! My luck finally turned with those big stinking
13: bastards. Westy, all around! (laughs) No thanks.
14: Wait a second, mister. Link Borland's buying. So, drink up.
13: Thanks, but I got some coffee coming. I don't do well on whiskey. If you'd pay for my coffee, I'd be much obliged. Mister, I've been in a real bad mood for a couple of years, so why don't you leave me alone? Drop your gun belt
9: and go away.
2: Now, that picture, the Kevin Costner film Wyatt Earp, which I enjoyed very much, I'm going to ask you about the accuracy of it in just a minute, um, that depicts the origins of Wyatt Earp's law enforcement career as a sort of something he fell into almost by accident after initially going down a wayward path and having some difficulty with the law early on. What can you tell us, Mark, about how Wyatt Earp actually got started as a lawman?
13: Yeah, that, uh, that take on his career as coming along with an accident is fiction. He, the first time that he took a job as a lawman was in Missouri, his father was already acting as a constable in the little town of Lamar. Now, we know that town today mainly because it's the birthplace of Harry Truman. But uh, his father wanted to uh, kind of slide over into another position and be justice of the peace, and he wrote to Wyatt to come to Lamar, Missouri, and he would rig it for him to become the the town constable using his influence. And so Wyatt came uh, all the way from Wyoming after working on the railroads the intercontinental railroad project and he went to Missouri to take that job i mean he wanted it because it's it looked like a little bit of security there
2: And then, um, obviously, I think a lot of people have heard about his time in Dodge City and in Tombstone. And uh, really, posthumously, I think his legend has grown much more than uh, when he was alive. Uh, He's been so associated with the gunfight at the OK Corral. What can you tell us, Mark, about what actually happened at the gunfight at the OK Corral? What was the deal there?
13: Well, what's so interesting about it is... Why it came about, and you've not yet seen a movie that really explained this, unless you happen to see a real small movie that came out. Uh, I guess it was back in the probably the early '70s. It was called Doc. Uh, Stacy Keach played Doc Holliday. In oh, that. cool! This is the only movie to give a hint of why this gunfight actually started, and all the other movies leave this out because they don't want Wyatt Earp to be someone who affiliates with the bad side company, with the outlaws. The fact is, Wyatt was famous for always using informants, and he was always keeping somebody uh, on a payroll in order to get him some inside information about outlaws.
2: Which is the same sort of thing law enforcement does today, we see.
13: Exactly. And And it was really a smart thing to do on his part. But in Tombstone, here's the way it panned out. Wyatt wanted very much to be the sheriff of the new county that formed there. It was going to be a very lucrative position, Cochise County in Arizona Territory. In order to get the votes to be sheriff, Wyatt knew that if he could capture these three outlaws who had just held up a stage— and killed the driver, who was a popular man. If he could get those three outlaws, bring them to justice, he would cinch the votes for his sheriffship. So he uh, dealt with one of the most despicable characters in his whole life story, and that was a man named Ike Clanton. And Clanton agreed to betray his outlaw friends in order to keep the reward money. Now, When Ike Clanton, who was a real loudmouth and just bombastic type of fellow, when he started feeling that this was going to backfire on him, he suddenly became aware that it was going to uh, be the end of his life if his comrades found out that, that he had squealed on his three outlaw buddies. So he started having just... Delusions that Wyatt was telling people about it, which Wyatt never would do. Wyatt Earp kept his word. And basically, Clanton dug his own grave that way by being so loud about it. So now he had to be blustery and threatening to the Earps in order to appear to be uh, an enemy of the Earps and not someone who collaborated with them. So he started threatening the lives of the Earps, and he went on an all-night drunk and just running around town yelling to anybody that would listen to him how he was going to take care of the Earps. Well, Virgil Earp, Wyatt's older brother, was the town marshal, and he he quieted Ike Clanton, told him to go to bed, that he was not paying much attention to him because he didn't take Ike seriously. But Ike kept at it all night. And the next day, when um, some of his... His comrades came into town. He just continued this kind of thing. And and it all then exploded over just a dis, misdemeanor, which was wow. these guys wanted to carry their guns. And that was against the law in town. And while carrying guns, they were threatening the erps Well, Virgil and his brothers gave these boys plenty of time to leave town, but they wouldn't take that time. And so Virgil said, as long as they're in the corral down there, meaning intending to leave town, I'll leave them alone. And one of the witnesses who had seen these outlaws talking down the street said, well, they're out in the street right now. They're not at the corral. So that's when Virgil and his brothers walked up there and the big event happened. It was all about carrying guns. But of course, beneath that was this whole other story that was going on that most people didn't know.
2: Now, you alluded to his uh, Arizona, um, his attempt, his hope to be elected. As a sheriff in Arizona, I know that he had served as a uh, legislator in the Arizona territory and ran for office a a few times throughout his life. What kind of a politician was Wyatt Earp? Did he associate with one political party or another? And uh, what were his uh, strengths and weaknesses, weaknesses, as best you can tell, on the campaign trail?
13: Well, as a politician, he was aware of things, but he was very... Uh, inept at it because he didn't have the personality to be a politician. He was too straight ahead and direct. He couldn't play the games that politicians simply have to play in order to to uh, cover both sides of the debate with people so that they didn't uh, lose favor with the public. That just didn't suit Wyatt at all. But he still had these ambitions. He was a very very ambitious person, and his reason for being so was that he simply wanted to make a lot of money, and he wanted to be well thought of by the upper classes because he didn't come from that class. So, as a politician, he was, I would say, a failed person. Hmm. Um, but, you know, really, that kind of kind of underpins his the way we know him now as such a, a direct person a no-nonsense sure. person. We don't think of politicians that way at all.
2: That, that's for sure. We're talking with Mark Warren. He has uh, written a series of award-winning biographies on the life and times of Wyatt Earp. We're going to tell you how you can get those in just a minute. You talked about that film Doc, where Stacey Keach plays Doc Holliday. There's been a whole bunch of films where um, the 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 personalities of Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp intersect with one another, not only at the gunfight at the OK Corral, but just in general. What can you tell us about what actually happened? What sort of a relationship did Wyatt Earp have with this uh, gunslinging dentist, Doc Holliday?
13: Well, it was one of the oddest pairings of anybody that we know of in the West because their personalities were so very different. Doc was a rather um, a wild card and flamboyant and a very hot temper and a drunkard. Wyatt didn't touch alcohol. He, um, he was the flip side of everything I just said. But here's what happened. Uh, I believe that when they first met in Texas, and Wyatt was on a detective trip trying to find some, some outlaws who had gone from Kansas down to Texas. Well, he was questioning people. And again, here's his informant side. And he was told that Doc Holliday could be someone who possibly could inform on these boys. So Wyatt approached him at a saloon and simply wanted to find out if he had some information. And during that conversation, Doc was mostly interested in hearing about Dodge City. He was thinking about going there himself. But I think during that conversation, I think Doc Holliday um, saw the first little opening of the door of a a kind of uh, emulation or... Admiration and possibly wishing he were like Wyatt or more. Uh, for Wyatt, I think it was the, the meeting meant practically nothing at all. But later in Dodge City, after Wyatt had returned, Doc Holliday comes there to live and he opens up his dental practice. And during that time, Wyatt had not even gone to visit him or see him, he had no real connections to him. But one night, a very odd thing happened while Doc was in a saloon gambling, as he usually was at night, Wyatt was called to a disturbance where several Texans were taking advantage of somebody in a saloon and just being generally rowdy, as was the uh, usual case. This is why a peace officer was needed in those towns for the most part, because of the Texas drovers who came up from Texas to Kansas to find uh, a source for their... Cattle sales, meaning where the railheads were. Uh, that was a combination that was just explosive firearms, alcohol, young men who wanted to prove themselves, and three months on the trail of misery. And finally, you get to this wide open town and you just want to celebrate. So Wyatt stepped into a situation. He usually handled things in a very physical way himself because he was bigger and stronger than most men and he had a confidence like you wouldn't believe, he stepped into something that he couldn't handle for once. He was over, uh, He was outnumbered, and people got the drop on him, and it looked like this was going to be the end of the story for Wyatt Earp. And for who knows what reason, Doc Holliday just stepped into this scenario with gun in hand and saved his life. Wow. And now Wyatt Earp is the kind of guy that when you do something like that for him, He is going to be an unwavering friend to you, no matter what. And if anyone could be said to be Wyatt Earp's, um, I would say, nemesis in terms of ambition, it was Doc Holliday. Because the association with Doc Holliday hurt Wyatt. Interesting. But Wyatt would not turn his back on it. Doc had saved his life, and so he was going to be a friend to Doc.
2: That That is wild. Um, I could talk with you about this stuff all day. I have literally pages worth of questions. But um, what did prompt me to reach out to you is this is our first week airing in Alaska. A lot of people don't associate Wyatt Earp with Alaska, but he did go up there to be part of the Klondike Gold Rush. What can you tell us about Wyatt Earp's time in Alaska?
13: Well, he was a tremendous opportunist in this sense. Um, he His words for this were that when he would go to a mining town, he would mine the miners, meaning gambling. He knew that they were getting their wages and there were a lot of people drawn to mining towns because this, there was a lot of money changing hands. And when the gold rush happened in Alaska, that, that it was inevitable that Wyatt was going to go there because he was a traveling man and he loved to try to Find out what was over that next rainbow as far as how could he make money and so uh, he probably had a an intention in the back of his mind that he was going to do prospecting because he loved prospecting he just loved like he loved gambling he just liked that unknown idea of how success can suddenly come to you in one fell swoop so he uh, traveled up there probably with the intention of starting some mining but what he did was what he did best which was to open a saloon. And he made a lot of money Hmm. doing that.
2: Uh, Mark, if people are interested in learning about Wyatt Earp, what is the best book of yours to start with, and how should people get it?
13: Well, my three books on Wyatt Earp are based on the best research that's been done in America by uh, a cadre of researchers who are friends of mine who have just done wonderful work. Um. What I've done is to take all of their work, and I, I've gone out to the places where things happened in Wyatt Earp's life with these uh, researchers, and so I have a close relationship with them. And my job in all this has been: I wanted to write the story that involved the real conversations and the feelings and the painting of the scenery. Uh, rather than just giving the facts. So my work is in the genre of historical fiction because I've added those conversations Mm. as if I've heard them, And, and in fact, no one has. But my study of his life has helped me to write these in such a way that I feel this is the way it happened, even though I cannot prove it word for word. The first book of mine is called A Law Unto Himself, I'm sorry, that's the last one. First one is um, The Long Road to Legend. And uh, it tells about his formative years. And the second book is Born to the Badge, where Wyatt finally has to settle with the fact that he is, the best thing that he does is to handle men. And so he's a he really excels at being a peace officer, and even though he really doesn't necessarily want to make a career of that. And,
2: and Mark, how do people get it? What's the best way for them to do it, Amazon or some other method? Oh,
13: any bookstore, and, anywhere. If they don't have it, they can order it. And
2: finally, Mark, uh, if, gun to your head, keeping in mind what you said, that there has not been a great, um, tr- uh, accurate cinematic portrayal of Wyatt Earp. If mm-hmm. you had to pick your favorite cinematic portrayal of Wyatt Earp, what would it be?
13: Portrayal of the man himself, uh, I have to go with Kevin Costner because um, Costner's delivery of the persona of Wyatt and the personality of Wyatt was probably closer Hmm. than any other actor uh, has ever done it. And the irony there is that's probably why that movie didn't do so well. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, The movie Tombstone, which everybody loved and Kurt Russell did a a great entertaining job there. I don't feel that Kurt Russell had that personality nailed uh, at all, Mark. Thank but you. He f- did. He made a very uh, likable character.
2: Thank you for joining me. I look forward to talking again soon. And thank you very much and, for having me. And speaking of Tombstone, we'll leave you with this bit of Kurt Russell as Wyatt Earp. Something on your mind? Just want to let you know you're sitting in my
14: chair. <laughs> Is that a fact?
1: Yeah, it's a fact.
14: Well, for a man that don't go healed, you run your mouth kind of reckless, don't you? No need to go healed to get the bulge on a tub like you.
4: Is that a fact? Hmm. That's a fact.
14: Well, I'm real scared. Damn right you're scared. I can see that in your eyes. All right. Man. Go ahead. Go ahead, skin it. Skin that smoke wagon and see what happens. Listen, mister, I'm getting awful tired of your... (laughs) I'm getting tired of your gas. Now jerk that pistol and go to work. I said throw down, boy. (laughs) You gonna do something or just stand there and bleed?
0: The Other Side of midnight. Midnight
2: The other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. You know what we're going to do uh, after the top of the hour. I am holding in my hand a the Powerball ticket that I purchased yesterday. I have intentionally not looked at the numbers. My numbers I it was quick pick, so they picked were selected at random and I have not looked at what numbers won. So um The reason that I did that is because I didn't want to not be able to tell you. So what we're going to do after the top of the hour is I will be looking at these numbers for the first time to see if I've won the Powerball. Now, I imagine it's already been reported whether or not there's been a jackpot winner, but who knows? Maybe I didn't win the jackpot. Maybe I hit five numbers. I don't know. Uh, But I will be looking at this for the first time, and then if I won, we will be spending a substantial amount of the next three hours determining... Uh, how I am going to spend this fortune. You know, it's funny. The jackpot was $1.2 billion. But, I, and again, you know when I buy a lottery ticket, I go all in, right? Visualizing exactly how I'm going to spend the money and everything. The jackpot is $1.2 billion. If I take the lump sum as a New Yorker, do you know how much I actually get? $490 million. After taxes and everything else, I'm only sitting here with $490 million. That's not a lot of money. I mean, it's a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money if you win 1.2. I mean, sheesh. I may have to pass a collection basket around. Until next hour, keep asking questions.
0: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
2: All right, we are moments away from finding out whether I am a billionaire. I may be. I may be a billionaire. We are going to go through uh, my picks for the uh, quick, uh, the uh, Powerball with a one point two billion with a B dollar jackpot, and then we are going to see how that worked out. All right, uh, let me tell you what else is coming up this hour. We are going to chat with Gerald Salente. I love talking with Gerald Salente. If Gerald Salente was wrong about everything, he would still be worth talking to because he is just so freaking entertaining. He's energetic, he's angry, he's fired up. There's no if you're worried about falling asleep driving home, maybe you work the late shift and you're you're on a long drive right right now. Just keep the radio tuned to this station, because he is going to get you fired up in a big way in mere moments. Uh, So we're going to get into that. All right. Um, There is also a story that I found very bizarre. A federal court has upheld a cruel and unconstitutional uh, law in St. Louis, Missouri on, and I'm not joking here, Sharing food with the homeless, this is not The Onion, this is not fiction. There is a, I can't even believe I'm saying this. There's a ban on sharing food with the homeless. And the ordinance governing how food can be shared is designed to make it next to impossible to share food. So, and apparently this has now been upheld by a federal appeals court. I'm going to tell you about that in a second. But first, let us get the Powerball winning numbers for November 2nd. Okay. And if you want to play along, you know the, the you can look at your own numbers. All right. The uh, d- drum roll, please. The winning numbers. I haven't looked at my ticket yet. are two, 11, 22, 35-, 60 and 23 is that enough? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 right, Okay. so, um, let me see Uh, do I have 2? I do have 2 on uh, I bought $20 worth of tickets do I have 11? I do have a couple with 11 but not on the same one that I have 2 do I have 22? let's see, 22 Mm, not on the same oh, 22 there, not on the same ones that I have anything else Do I have 35? 35, 35, any 35s? Doesn't look like I have any 35s. Uh, Do I have 60? 60, 60, 60. Uh, No, no, I have 60. And the Powerball is number 23, which I do not have. So it appears I am not a billionaire. I have lost. Hopefully you uh had better luck than I did. Maybe you won some money. So it looks like I didn't get any more than one number on any of these. Jeez. Well, that's lame. I'm going to recheck these at the during the top of the hour in case I what? missed something. But it does appear that um that I did not win the jackpot anyway. That's it, right, thank. It, it appears so You're not so smart. It appears that I didn't win anything. So, did anybody win? Do we know if uh, somebody won uh, the jackpot? Do we have any idea? I don't
1: think anybody won. No.
2: All right, well, good. So then I, I'm still in it. Once the, the Let the prize money roll over, and uh, I could still be a billionaire, potentially. alright hundred eight four we We're going to talk with Gerald Salente in just a moment. I'm going to take your calls in a moment. Let me tell you about this uh, St. Louis situation, though, because this is something that has not been widely reported. I read about it in Reason uh, Reason is sort of like a libertarian publication, but I like to read them because they cover a lot of stories that a lot of the other newspapers miss. Earlier this month, a federal appeals court upheld a St. Louis ban on sharing potentially hazardous foods with the homeless and less fortunate. Courthouse News uh, also reported on this. The ban was challenged by Pastor Raymond Redlick and a colleague who believe they have both a duty and a right to provide food to people in need. So the suit grew out of a Halloween 2018 incident in which police ticketed this pastor and uh, Christopher uh, Onimus, both of them employees of New Life Evangelical Center in St. Louis, and ordered them to appear in court for handing out bologna sandwiches to homeless people. The citation alleged the pair was operating without a permit, and that probable cause for arrest existed for operating prepared food without permits. Can you imagine? You give a homeless person a bologna sandwich, you're supposed to get a permit? What What would the permit say? Uh, what are you getting, a bologna permit? I think these cops were full of bologna. While well, the city later agreed not to prosecute the pair, oh, gee, thanks. Redlich and uh, Ominous, uh, Oanimous, excuse me, sued anyway to protect their right to continue sharing food with those in need. They allege that the city ban violates their rights under the First and Fourteenth Amendment, including their rights, uh, their freedom of religion, expression, and association. Last year, the U.S. District Court in St. Louis ruled in favor of the city. This month, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the lower court ruling holding government regulation of inherently expressive conduct such as distributing sandwiches to the homeless, does not necessarily violate the First Amendment if the regulation furthers an important or substantial government interest. Some might think the suit is a lot of baloney, but it raises interesting issues. That's what the St. Louis city attorney told the told St. Louis Today uh, three years ago after the lawsuit was filed. The lawsuit is not baloney at all, but the St. Louis ordinance... And the court's deference to it and those enforcing it is total nonsense. The ordinance contains all sorts of absurd requirements that don't pertain to and should not apply to people donating food to needy people. For example, as the ruling details the ordinance, which has been amended since 2018, um, the ordinance requires a person to provide a 48-hour notice to the city related to their event event. Uh, mandates the purchase of a $50 temporary food service permit to distribute potentially hazardous food and requires the presence of, get this, a hand-washing station, potable water, and food-grade wash tubs, all this, to hand out some sandwiches. Alas, the ordinance also hates sandwiches. Most of them, at least. It prohibits the serving of any sandwiches that contain meat, poultry, eggs, or fish. So I guess, what could you have? Maybe a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, citing food safety justifications. But the same ordinance allows the serving of potentially hazardous foods requiring limited preparation, such as hamburgers and frankfurters, apparently because those foods only require seasoning and cooking. I mean, this is crazy. A bologna sandwich requires neither cooking nor seasoning. Apparently, St. Louis and the Eighth Circuit believe sandwiches containing meat, poultry, eggs, or fish are less likely to cause foodborne illnesses than hamburgers and hot dogs, which are, after all, sandwiches containing meat. I mean, I know there's a big debate about whether or not a Frankfurter is a sandwich, but I mean, for these purposes, I think it certainly is. This makes absolutely no sense. I want you to listen to this excerpt from the Eighth Circuit's ruling. Okay, upholding this absurd ordinance. It is an eminently reasonable proposition that a municipality has a substantial interest in preventing the spread or ill the spread of illness or disease among its citizens, including its homeless population. Let me pause right there, as I am reading the Eighth Circuit's decision, but I have to stop. The same people that don't want you to be able to give a sandwich to the homeless are saying the ordinance preventing you from giving a sandwich to the homeless makes sense because you can't have the homeless get sick. No! Why worry about them getting sick when they can starve to death? I don't know what is going on in St. Louis, people. I will never root for the Cardinals again. The evidence – going back to reading the Eighth Circuit's decision here – and the evidence before the district court belies appellants' claim that the city failed to make an adequate showing with respect to the interests served by the ordinance. The city introduced evidence that it has traced incidents of illness among its homeless population to illegally distributed food dating back to 2012. This is absurd. As Reason points out, they use imminently when they mean eminently. Two, it appears the Eighth Circuit did nothing more than take the government at their word. They took the government's evidence at their word. This is crazy for a whole bunch of reasons, not the least of which is that an appellate court hearing a case brought to it after a lower court grants summary judgment is supposed to do the opposite. Now, about that evidence that the Eighth Court just cited, and Gerald Salente is coming up. I know we have a bunch of people tuning in to hear Gerald Salente. We're going to get to him. The Eighth Sor- Circuit relied on reports of purported cases of foodborne illness among the homeless in St. Louis that the city says it traced to illegally distributed food. But exhibits in the case show those cases involve a former police officer who appears to have a, 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 some sort of an ability to diagnose cases and causes of foodborne illnesses among St. Louis's homeless population. In an email from August of 2012 titled Parking Problems in Downtown West, which focuses mainly on parking and noise complaints, this former St. Louis police officer referenced the existence of complaints from unnamed residents that on weekends groups are coming downtown and providing food to the homeless. In the email, they also talk about occasions where individuals have gotten sick as a result of the provided food. That's the evidence. One former cop's email, which is completely lacking in proof. This cop doesn't cite anything specific. And this email from 10 years ago is what the Eighth Circuit used to uphold this lower court's decision. I don't care what anybody's uh, judicial philosophy is or ideology is or politics are. It cannot be illegal to give a homeless person a sandwich. It can't be. This is crazy. The Supreme Court, I hope, will take up this case and make it legal once and for all to give a homeless person a sandwich in St. Louis. Bernie, very quickly here, because we've got Gerald Salente waiting in the wings. Hello.
4: Hello. Uh, my name is Bernie. up from Staten Island. Uh, Wyatt Urban was uh, a girl named, woman named Marcus, was born in Manhattan. She, she was the daughter of Orthodox Jews. She had an adventurous soul. She went out west. She hooked up with Wyatt Earp. When Wyatt was a gambler, a prospector, and she stuck with she stuck with him through th- th- thick and thin. Eventually, they wound up. Marcus was his common law wife. Eventually, Marcus and Wyatt Earp wound up in Los Angeles. In the early 20s, when the movie Cowboys were in silence, Wyatt Earp was a consultant to the actors playing Cowboys. He taught them how to be cowboys. That's right. When, that's right. That's when right. Wyatt died in Los Angeles in 1929. Yeah,
2: I, I think the did, woman you're talking about, her last name was Marcus. It was Josephine Sarah Marcus. And you're right. She was born in New York, and the rest of that history is uh, quite accurate. Thank you, Bernie. Henry in Manhattan, very quickly. Hi, good evening.
15: Uh, I want to say something about the distribution of food to the homeless. Uh, I think the uh, ordinance or law makes sense. Of course, uh, you do. If you're talking about applying it to an institution, uh, as opposed to me getting up one day and saying I'm going to make eight sandwiches and give it to people on the subway, which I've seen happen. Uh, and and the reason is because there can be a lot of food poisoning unless things are done right. Uh, uh, you know, so certain meats, like I think you said, bologna. I, I don't know about uh, what what uh, cold cuts or whatever are subject to food poisoning. But I know one day I, I had food poisoning because I had a sandwich in my pocket. Uh, not it, it was in a bag, of course. But it had mayonnaise in, in it. And uh, the mayonnaise... All right. uh, Henry, how
2: about we let the homeless take these sandwiches at their own risk? Right. I mean, if a homeless person has the choice of maybe getting food poisoning or not eating, what do you think they're going to pick? And unfortunately, these uh, these laws are not limited to St. Louis. Um, even as the, there are laws and similar ordinances all over, there's a book called Biting the Hand That Feeds Us, How Fewer Smarter Laws Would Make Our Food System More Sustainable. And in that book, they cite examples in New York, Philadelphia, Las Vegas, Birmingham, Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, and elsewhere. These bans are insanely and frustratingly common. The Supreme Court ought to act And make a ruling on these bans. Gerald Salente joins us straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Frank Morano.
2: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Imagine, if you will, that Nostradamus lived in the 20th century and the 21st century. And instead of being some Frenchman that didn't speak English, he was a tough-talking New Yorker who didn't give a damn. And then further imagine that Nostradamus came to his predictions not based on some sort of um, mystical reading of the stars, but based on analyzing data. If you can imagine those three things, then you have a pretty good idea of Gerald Salente. Gerald Salente is an incredible person. Not only is he interesting to talk to and quite an intellect, but he's the founder of the Trends Research Institute and publisher of the Trends Journal, and over the course of the last 35 years, maybe longer, he has predicted every major trend and when I say every major trend I don't just mean economic trends like when the stock market's going to go up and when uh, the housing boom is going to burst, when the dot-com bubble is going to burst. He picks cultural trends, like the rise of bottled water and all sorts of things like that. And over the last six months or so, he has been one of the few voices out there advocating loudly for peace. And I am thrilled to be joined once again by one of my favorite guests, Gerald Salente. Gerald, it's great to talk to you.
16: Oh, thank
7: you. And thank you so much for the kind words. I really appreciate it.
2: Joe, before we talk about the Russia-Ukraine situation, which I'm certainly eager to get your take on, everybody is uh, focused on the elections on Tuesday. The conventional wisdom has the Republicans winning big, a red wave. What's your prediction? What do you see happening in the elections Tuesday?
7: Well, when you look at all the data going back some 40 years, every midterm election, <clears throat> the party in power loses seats. And it's no different this time because the the people that get into power they get in on a lot of BS and they don't deliver what they say and then when the midterms come they start backing off and the same thing's going to happen now. It's the one term. It was Bill Clinton's camp behind the campaign scene uh, talk back in 1992 when uh, Ross Perot and Bush and him ran. It's the economy, stupid. End of story. All this other stuff. You know, it goes in one year and out the other. It's about the economy. And right now the economy is not good in terms of the average person. You know, inflation is really hurting people. You look at all the numbers, you know, they're right there. Here, 63% of the people in the United States, the land of opportunity, are living paycheck to paycheck. I mean, that's the data coming out. So it's going to be the Republicans are going to uh, uh, win a lot more seats. As do you see, do you
2: see them winning both houses of Congress, or do you see the Senate uh, remaining sort of split for now? Yeah, they
17: can,
7: they can uh, definitely uh, get both
2: houses. As far as inflation goes, uh, do you see that, irrespective of who wins these elections, uh, do you see that getting any better anytime soon? And which sectors do you see being particularly hammered hardest by inflation?
7: What they're missing, what they don't talk about at all, is the inflation is primarily a result of all of the cheap, fake money that they pumped into the system to fight the COVID war. Look at the moronic stuff they did with telling people they can't go to work, but here's your money. Close down your business, but don't worry about it. Here's your money. They made up this stuff. And, And then you had a thing called zero interest rates. So it's all the cheap money that made it happen. You had merger and acquisition activity in twenty twenty one at the highest levels ever. The big's buying up everything was all the cheap money. So what's going to be the biggest hard hit is it's um it's going to be the, the, the off the commercial office sector. Is not hit by inflation, but hit by depression. You're looking at the numbers and if you, you on average the Office occupancy rate in the United States is, is around 50 percent. It's actually lower. So all the businesses that depended on commuters, oh, those happy hours aren't happy anymore. Huh. And all, of the, all of Now let's go back to the raising of the interest rates. So all of these big guys that bought all these big buildings, oh, well, now they've got to pay more money on their debt load. Oh, and I'm a guy, and I, let's say I had 10 stories in a building, and now my employees, you know, I don't want to travel an hour and a half each way on the LIE. I really hate it. And when I was working at home, I realized how much I hate it, and I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> okay, work home three days a week, two days a week. And now I don't need 10, 10 floors anymore. Maybe I only need three. You are going to see a commercial business commercial uh, crash, the likes of which we have never seen. And then you hear the BS coming out. Well, you know, you could turn them into apartments. No, the buildings that have been bought, built in the last 50 years, no, they're not apartments accessible. You can't turn them into it. They haven't been constructed like that. But no one talks about this. So you're looking at you're looking at a crisis beyond the imagination. And again. Let's get this straight, everybody. You didn't see a guy eating pizza on 10th Avenue and a guy picking up a chair and banging him over the head. You didn't see people getting pushed into the, into the subway tracks. You didn't see violence like this before they locked down society mm, to fight the COVID war. And they made up all this crap you got to stand six feet apart. The wind blows exactly in straight lines. Does it go up? Does it go down? It goes in six feet. Now you stand six feet. What are you, in kindergarten? Anyway, when people lose everything and have nothing left to lose, they lose it. So what we're seeing is a major geopolitical and financial socioeconomic crisis, the likes of which – we've never seen in human history. Now, let's go back to the interest rates. How about all those things called emerging markets that are submerging because their currencies are getting crashed because the dollar is going up, and the only reason the dollar is going up is because all the other currencies are so weak. Now they gotta pay back their debt. Oh, they gotta pay back their debt as their currencies are declining? Oh, you think you have a migrant and a refugee crisis now? Ain't seen anything yet. You are going to see more and more people taking to the streets around the world, protesting, lack of basic living standards, government corruption, crime, violence. This thing is so out of control, it's beyond the imagination.
2: And uh, it's to say nothing, these lockdowns of the damage they've done in almost every other aspect of society. I mean, you're just talking about the economy, but you want to talk about substance abuse, education, alcoholism, the list goes on and on. But we could do a whole series of shows just on that. Uh, We're talking with Gerald Salente. He is a a modern-day prophet, and uh, he is a trends forecaster, the publisher and founder of the Trends Research Institute. Gerald, one of the reasons I really enjoy talking to you is Because you are a political atheist. You don't seek to spin for the benefit of one party or or any other, or one politician or another. One of the mistakes that I think Republicans are making as a party, and some of my conservative listeners are making when they call me, is they think that all they have to do is elect Republicans, and all of a sudden it, the inflation problem goes away. When if you look at the inflation problem, for some of the reasons you say, you cited, this is a worldwide problem. This is not likely to go away if a whole bunch of Republicans get elected next week, is it?
7: No, no. It has nothing to do with it. And again, you know, I was the assistant to the secretary of the New York State Senate at 26 years old. I ran major political campaigns in Westchester County at a graduate school back in the early '70s. Angelo Martinelli became the longest-running mayor in in Yonkers. I was there when I, I quit. I quit the, the the Senate after one year. It was the worst job I ever had. To watch grown men grovel to suck their way up to the top It's not the way I was, you know, grew up. So the whole thing, people call it a government. It's a crime syndicate. They're murderers and thieves. How many more wars? Oh, you you, you like Georgie Bush's war? How can anybody with a brain bigger than a pea listen to that little clown? And, oh, only 88% of the people did. We're going to get that guy Osama bin Laden dead alive. I'm not making that up. So when you look at it, when I say a crime syndicate, they're murderers and thieves. They start these wars based on lies. And what's the other one? Hey, hey, I'm Jamie Dimon, I'm Goldman Sachs, I'm too big to fail, you're just a piece of crap, I'm too big to, too big to fail, and the Federal Reserve dumps in, according to the Levy Institute of Bard College, $29 trillion between 2007 and 2010 to bail out the banksters. And then, oh, I'm a Democrat. Oh, yeah, you like that guy, Jimmy Carter, who did away with the usury laws? Oh, yeah, when I was a guy, oh, you know, the mob, they're charging 10%. Oh, yeah, but now, you know, credit cards could charge, you know, hey, we could go crazy on this thing. Oh, the Jimmy Carter that allowed interstate banking wasn't allowed before, only intrastate banking. It's a crime syndicate. These are – There was a guy by the name of Dwight D. Eisenhower, five-star general, supreme commander of the Allied Forces, two-term president. I've heard of him. you heard of him, right? You look up his name, and you write the thing, and you can see the quote. Any man seeking the office of president is either an egomaniac or crazy.
2: It's tough to argue with that, and uh, I think he's proven prophetic over the course of the last 60 years or so. Uh, Let's talk about this Russia-Ukraine situation. You've been very vocal, and because you, as I have tried to do, have said maybe the United States should try to uh, lower the temperature and try to facilitate a peaceful settlement and a ceasefire instead of uh, adding fuel to the fire and keeping this conflict going— You have been pilloried all over the press, all over social media, as a Putin apologist, as a (laughs) Russian stooge. Now, I am somebody that likes everybody to like him. You, I get the sense, almost welcome the enmity of your haters. How do you deal with uh, that so effectively, all these folks calling you a, a Putin propagandist?
7: They're not Americans. I'm an American. I believe in people by the name of George Washington. Supreme commander of the, uh, 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 a real man that fought, not like these little fat mouthed boys like little Obama, the Nobel Peace of Crap Prize winner. I want that guy Gaddafi out of there. I want that guy Assad out of there. Uh, the, the the Afghan troop surge. Or not a little clown like a Bill Clinton, you know, the Yugoslav war killing over 500,000 Iraqi children under the age of five with the sanctions. Not like a little Georgie Bush that couldn't fight his way out of a paper bag. A real man. George Washington, read his farewell address, Warns the American people not to get involved in any foreign entanglements, particularly in Europe. These things have been going on for centuries. Our concern is only America. You know, and and, and the hypocrisy of all of this, by the way, People don't know – you know, oh, they, take, they took down a statue of Catherine the Great in Ukraine because they say she hated Ukrainians so much. Oh, you mean Catherine the Great the, goes back to 1750, a border war, a border war between two countries that's been going since 1750? Oh, and you're telling me to get involved in it? Oh, and you know what everybody forgot, by the way? What a clown job happened when when Biden closed down and pulled out of Afghanistan, another, again, illegal war. And what a mess it was. But everybody forgot it. We're going to help the Ukrainians. We're going to bring freedom and democracy. (laughs) Yeah, okay. I've heard this story, I think, from the Vietnam War, on and on and on war. Look at all the people.
2: Eventually, we're going to get it right, I'm sure. We just got to keep trying.
7: Oh, yeah. And again, go back to Dwight D. Eisenhower. Five-star general, speaking of the Allied Forces, two-term president. Farewell address. January seventeenth, nineteen 1961. Warning the American people that the military-industrial complex is robbing the nation of the genius of the scientists, the sweat of the laborers, and the future of the children. Oh, and who's the guy playing our secretary of defense? Lloyd Austin. Oh, you mean loser Lloyd Austin? Oh, you did a great job in Iraq, you know? Oh, that guy? Oh, that guy? What was his last job? On the board of directors of Raytheon, the second largest defense contractor in the United States, who says, quote, we're going to weaken Russia. Who the hell are you to get involved in Russia? You want to go weaken Russia? Go. I'll tell you what. We can make a lot of dough with this. We'll put it on. We'll we'll, we'll do a broadcast. Putin against uh, uh, Lloyd Austin in the ring. All right. You want to go fight? (laughs) Who are these clowns? And all you people hanging up your—I your, see more I see more Ukrainian flags than
2: American flags. Oh, that, it drives me crazy. Don't get me and, started and on that. And here's the other
7: one. God bless America? What God are you talking about? You tell me the God that loves murderous wars. Tell me the God. Tell me the God. What's your God that believes in war?
2: You got me. I, I'm not mine, not one that I believe in. Now, uh, we'll talk with Gerald Salente. You can check out some of his work at trendsresearch.com. He also is doing a terrific podcast, which we're going to tell you about in a second. The latest on this Russia-Ukraine situation seems to have to do with these, this grain deal. Russia was uh, continuing to export grain in order to avoid hunger, not just in Ukraine, but around the world. Then they decided, all right, well, if since the West insists on using drugs, to uh, keep trying to shoot us. We're going to stop doing that. Yesterday, they came out and said, all right, actually, we're not going to stop doing that. We're going to do a U-turn on the grain deal and still continue to uh, send out this this grain. The Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, came out and said that Putin's about-face on this grain deal is essentially a failure of Russian aggression, and he's calling for guarantees showing that Russian blackmail has led nowhere. I, uh, I really th- get the sense that even in the West, some people are starting to get fed up with Zelensky. What is your take?
7: Again, let's go back to the grain deal. Another thing that Putin was saying, and the facts are there, it's not going to the poor countries. It's going to Turkey, and it's going to Europe. and It's not going to where it was supposed to be going. Number two, they, they keep saying how Russia's losing, Russia's losing. Russia controls over 20% of Ukraine now, but they never talk about that anymore. And now you're looking at Ukraine with with at least 40% of its uh, energy gone. This is, this thing, could the, the destruction that's happened because of the United States and NATO sending more weapons uh, to keep bloody in the killing field is preposterous. We have no business being there. It's none of our business, and and again, this has been going on between these two countries be over three hundred years. And now let's go back to the Trends Journal. It used to be a quarterly, now it's a weekly. Back in two thousand fourteen, front page cover: the guy, you know, in tears. The United States overthrew the democratically elected government of Viktor Yanukovych, that the, in Ukraine, that the international observers said was a legal election they forgot about the it was according to the Uni- european union ukraine is and was the most corrupt country in europe so they have this election again victoria nuland uh, under under secretary under obama uh, in, in passing out cookies in maiden square caught on caught on a cell phone talking to the ambassador at the time jeffrey Pyatt. F the EU, F U the EU. We're going to put Yats in there. This little clown Yatsenyuk. After they, when they overthrew the government, Google Victoria Newland in in December 2013. The coup was in 2014. There she is in Washington D.C. with one Chevron over one side of a, a, a big sign and the other sign Exxon Mobil and she's saying how this is 2013 how the United States you ready has sent 5 billion dollars to Ukraine to non-governmental organizations to bring democracy to Ukraine the United States overthrew the government number 2 when the when the when the war broke out and the war ended they had a thing called the Minsk agreement Designed by Germany and France. Both Ukraine and Russia signed it. The deal was the Donbass region, which is all Russian people, was going to be a separatist region. Not separatist by law, but they would be left alone until this thing is is solved. The Ukrainians killed over 14,000 people in Donbass. And this was going on. Even before, just before the Russian invasion, and by the way, I'm totally opposed to the invasion. Just to make of this course. clear, of course. Yeah, same here. Number number three, go back to Gorbachev and Reagan, and Gorbachev and Bush Senior, when the Soviet Union broke apart. The deal was finally, and when it did break apart, quote, NATO would not move one inch further. There were sixteen NATO countries. Now there were thirty. If if the Russians were up in Canada with missiles aimed at us and the Chinese were down in in Mexico with missiles aimed at us, oh America would be so happy. Oh it would oh, we don't care. Oh oh and if and if the Russians were doing, you know, naval maneuvers off the coast of New York and and the Chinese were out there in California, and oh let's put the Iranians down in the Gulf of Mexico. Oh America would be so happy with that. Well, it's the military industrial complex. It's the warmongers in charge that have never stopped this since World War II.
2: What do you think the United States should do going forward? Okay, what's done is done. Let's say uh, the the president and the folks in his administration say, all right, we clearly need to do something different. We're way too close to nuclear war. If you were in charge, what would you be doing with respect to this Russia-Ukraine situation prospectively?
7: Listen, you guys should make a deal, especially you guys in Ukraine, because you're not going to win. You're not going to beat the Russians. Your country's getting destroyed. This is really stupid. You're going to have to make a deal here. Number two, if I was president, bring home the troops from the 800 bases overseas. What the hell are we doing in Okinawa? Oh, now we're going to fight the Chinese? If they, if they if, was going on between China and Taiwan since, what, the Ming Dynasty? And, and i bring home all the troops? And i secure the homeland. And i put the troops to re- rebuild our third world rotten infrastructure. Uh, uh, taking a subway in New York is like a night in Calcutta. Look at the rotten roads. Look how this country is going down. That's what I would do. And if you want to go to war? Very simple. Let the people vote. Because the, cl- the cl- slimy little low-life pieces of cowardly Congress – who are supposed to vote to go to war according to the Constitution, I think it's uh, article one or it was some one of them uh, uh, eight something anyway, they have not done so since World War two, so being that they're the cowards and they give the, the 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 power to el presidente, you want to go to war, let the people vote. Let the people vote. We're the ones that pay for the war with our money and our lives.
2: What are your predictions on where we go from here? It doesn't seem like—
7: It's going to go—we're going to go—look, you read the cover of the Trends Journal going back to February 22nd, two days before Russia invaded. COVID war, Ukraine war, world war, with an atomic—nuclear blast behind it. That's where we're going. And people don't get this in their head. Suppose you were a Ukrainian. Look what your life is. This is an ancient history. World War II. Europe destroyed. Oh, and when I forgot World War I. That was only 20 years before then. And what's your favorite war? The Peloponnesian War? No, I like the 100-year war. Oh, the War of the Roses was beautiful. (laughs) Don't you understand? We have mentally ill, deranged people running and ruining our lives. Who do you like, Chucky Schumer? I mean, look at the clowns. Oh no, I like Mitch McConnell. Oh, look at these clowns. It's a freak show in front of everybody's eyes, and the freaks, are, the freaks are running the show.
2: It's really to put it to say it's disappointing would be putting it uh, incredibly mildly. And unfortunately, if you look at what the West has done here with doubling down on sanctions and making Russia an international pariah, it looks like the most immediate byproduct of that has been to raise energy prices for everybody, especially the West, and Ugh. to drive Russia closer to Iran, China, North Korea, and yep. Turkey. If yep. you look at the numbers that came out this week on who Russia's been trading with uh, yep. for the last six months, both imports and exports to all those countries have gone through the roof. Gee, I wonder what could go wrong. You got it. And look, over over 100,000 small and
7: medium-sized businesses in Italy, are going out of business. They're stopping production in Germany. You're, you're, you're looking at inflation rates, what, over 10%? 10.4% in, in Germany? Oh, you're, you're looking at, at, at energy prices going up 40% in a month? Do you, you realize the damage that's being done here? Oh, and by the way, there are protests going on. They hardly make the news at all. We've been, we've been, we've been, we've been, you know, dealing with them. We we put them in the in the magazine each week. Oh, and then the other things we do too are the layoffs going on. The layoffs all over the world, all over the world, all over the world. And again, what people they don't they don't have a clue. In, in the sense of what this damage is being done. I am so – again, oh, oh, they came out yesterday. Noriel Rubini said we're in World War Three. Guess what? We only said this, what? February, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November. No kidding. No kidding. Oh, no, World War I began, Gerald, when they, no, they assassinated the, the Archduke Ferdinand in Sarajevo. Yeah, what's an Archduke and what's a Sarajevo? It was building up to that. Oh, no, World War Two began when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Yeah, Nothing was going on before that, nothing leading up to it. No actions taken by America. No, no, no. It's already happening. And, and again, just as the people march off to the COVID war, they march off to world war they again they believed a little stupid jerky moron an imbecile born on third base and thought he had a home run my daddy was george bush george w bush how stupid can you be to believe a clown like him when there's fear and hysteria the people lose their critical thinking and they look to the leaders to lead them
2: gerald um i could talk with you for hours Uh, before we get out of here though i have to ask you about this Terrific podcast that you're doing with uh, another friend of mine, Judge Andrew Napolitano, former Fox News legal analyst, former New Jersey Superior Court judge, Salente and the Judge. It's a great video podcast. I find myself watching all the time because you guys uh, cover stories and take positions that you really don't hear anywhere else. Even on uh, a lot of talk radio outlets, you don't hear that kind of conversation and certainly not on cable news. Uh, What prompted you to team up with Judge Napolitano and how can people watch this?
7: Oh, they could go to Trends Journal uh, on YouTube, Trends Journal, and, and they could see it. We've known each other for years. I used to be on his show when he was on Fox. And, you know, we're two paisanos, you know, so we, we hit it off really well. We We go to dinner often. And there's no constitutional lawyer really out there that knows what he knows and says what he says. And he's a real man for, for free America. And it breaks his heart to see what's happened to this country too, how our freedom has been stolen from us in so many different ways. And that's what this is all about. You know, we're, we're, this is America from the founding fathers. And and they've they've destroyed our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, and it's, just, it's so terrible. You know, it, 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 again, you know, that even to, to think of, you know, if you're not vaccinated, you can't go to work. I mean, Heil Hitler, who could, who could tell, who could ever imagine this would ever happen with the founding fathers? If you don't do what we tell you, you can't do this. If we don't do this isn't the America that this country was founded upon. And they're destroying it. So the judge, Judge Napolitano is very upset about
10: this.
2: Last question I'll ask you, Gerald, is when I I bring people like you on or I highlight stories that our listeners haven't heard, a whole bunch of people always write to me and thank me. They say even if they disagree with a lot of the things that I'm saying, they haven't heard this anywhere else. And I'm always so curious about where people get their news from. Aside from Salente and the judge, aside from this radio program, where do you get your news from? Where, what are some of the media outlets, could be television, radio, print, whatever, that you put some stock into and make sure to check on a regular basis?
7: I read constantly. I'm not. I mean, the, the magazines are average about 150 pages. I send the articles to the writers, and I underline the salient points to them. So what we do is we go from the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. We get to, We we go to. Then we go to to Global Times of China. We go to Al Jazeera. We go to Ha Ha We go to uh, Iranian News Agency. We we cover the world. We go to. We go to TASS, the Russians, we go to RT, we go to Sputnik. We want to hear what everybody has to say. Then we write the article. This is how it's being reported. This is what they're saying. And then we break it down. And we say, okay, if they said this, then this means that. That means this. This is our trend analysis, and this is our trend forecast. So as you said, I'm a political atheist. We don't take sides. You, you, you get the quotes from, from, from whether it's Murdoch or whether it's uh, uh, MSNBC, CNN. They play to their audience. We don't play to an audience I could care who, what you believe in. This is what we see. These are, This is how they're reporting it. This is our analysis. We make it clear. So that's what we do different. And then we give you the trends. This is what it means. This is what's next. And this is what we suggest you might consider
2: doing. On that note, Gerald Salente, it is always a treat to talk with you, my friend. I'll look forward to our next conversation.
7: And thank you so much. And thank you so much for all that you do.
2: I appreciate that. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation, give me a call 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is the other side of midnight,
0: straight ahead. The other side of midnight. 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 It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
17: Spirits all well appointed in off-season special fields Too far, Alaska down to Rio in the carnival. Norwegian fjords in the, the everlight of solstice called
2: This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. We'll take your calls in a minute, 800-848-9222. including still to come. We so see we still have uh, two guests to get to, so I'm not sure when this will be, but I will give you the good, the bad and the ugly about my attempt to cook dinner yesterday. Oh yes. Oh yes. Uh maybe we'll do that after the top of the hour, but depending on the uh depending on the call volume, we'll see. I did want to share with you, it took me four separate times of getting it done, but I was finally able to see a motion picture for the first time in a while. Carmine and I watched a film called The Atom Project. Have you seen this? Have you heard about this? It's really interesting. It's on Netflix. <clears throat> it's, um, now, the thing that you have to understand about me, and I'll play you the trailer for it if you want to hear it, is I am a sucker for any film having to do with time travel. I love any film. You talk about comedy, drama, action, whatever. Uh, The Time Machine, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Terminator, Time After Time, Star Trek IV, uh, Back to the Future, whatever. I am a sucker For any film having to do with time travel, I've seen many of them. I don't want to say I've seen all of them, but I've seen a lot of them, and I love all of them. I I just love them. Sure enough, I saw this film, The Atom Project, and in many ways, it's sort of just your typical formulaic Hollywood action sci-fi movie. I absolutely love this film. I loved it. It's uh basically I'll, I'll, Ryan Reynolds is the star, but Mark Ruffalo is also in it. Jennifer Garner is also in it. Everybody's terrific and um, Ryan Reynolds is from the future and he has to go back in time and he meets his 12 year old self. I love this picture. It's funny. The, it's great sci-fi. It's great action. At times, it's dramatic. The acting is good. I mean, you've seen Ryan Reynolds like this a bunch of times before, but he's great. Uh, if you like Deadpool, you'll like his humor in this. It's really well done. Here's a, a trailer to uh, the Atom Project, which is on Netflix. Right, can you make me down? There's no one even following us. Don't look back.
14: Look up.
1: I think we're about to have some company. Stop the car. What? What? Stop!
18: Go, 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 go. we Laura, this is... me.
3: Hi. Parallel contact, babe? Well, you know, you've always said that you wished you'd met me earlier. Here I am. <laughs> Do you remember this? I mean, if this is happening to me, it already happened to you, right?
6: Unless it works more like a
7: multiverse, where
2: each shrimp creates an alternate timeline. A multiverse. My God, we watch too many movies. So that's uh, the, uh, the trailer uh, from the Atom Project. I really enjoyed it, though. Uh, I thought it was really well done. Uh, as I said, it, parts of it were funny, parts of it were dramatic. The action is great. The special effects were great. I didn't find the story to be predictable. I didn't. I couldn't tell you how it was uh, going to end. When, when it started, unlike so many of these films. So it's it's available on Netflix for free if you subscribe to Netflix. I enjoyed it. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Have your dog or cat, spayed or neutered.
0: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
2: Tomorrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Well, I, I knew it would happen. I just did not think that it would happen this quickly. But sure enough, Hochul has been out would That's right. Uh, governor Kathy Hochul, the governor of the state of New York, whose defining characteristic as governor seems to be buying. Um, Votes with tax dollars and getting reaping the benefits of uh, those campaign contributions. Sure enough, it looks like her um, boondoggle of a deal for the Buffalo Bills has been eclipsed. It is wild, but it is happening. The Tennessee Titans Stadium is going to get even more in public money than the $850 million headed to the Buffalo Bills. Now, I don't want to go through the whole Buffalo Bills deal again, uh, but I spent a lot of time on it at the time that we, you know, at the time this was finalized. Essentially, the taxpayers of the state of New York and the taxpayers in Erie County were forced to foot the bill for a private business like the Buffalo Bills to get wealthy with. And I didn't think it was right. And I have to say, this latest stadium project, I find just as reprehensible. And I'm talking about it now because this is clearly, these aren't one-offs. This is the continuation of a trend where public money goes to private Millionaires and billionaires, or as Bernie Sanders would say, millionaires and billionaires, and they get to get even more wealthy in facilities you're building for them. And we used to call this corporate welfare or crony capitalism. Now I I don't know what we call it. I guess we call it the cost of doing business. But the Tennessee Titans are closing in on an agreement for a new stadium, and the city of Nashville. And the state of Tennessee could be pumping in, are you ready for this? Up to $1.26 billion. It's more money than I almost won in Powerball. More than $1.26 billion in public money for what will reportedly be between a $2.1 billion and $2.2 billion project to build a domed stadium. And that would exceed, if this goes through the approximately $850 million in public funds earmarked for the uh, soon-to-be open-air stadium in Orchard Park. But as a percentage of the total cost, the public funding for both stadiums' projects is roughly equal. It's around 61% for the Bills and 60% for the Titans. Before the Bills deal... The high mark for public funding was set by the $750 million in taxpayer money going towards Allegiant Stadium, the home of the Las Vegas Raiders. Now, I'm a sports fan, and I think it's great to be able to uh, have a team stay where, where the hometown fans really want them. I'm also a guy that recognizes that when you have big stadiums like this, that creates a lot of jobs. It means construction jobs. It means jobs for the valet parker. It means jobs for the guy that sells the beer and the guy that sells the hot dogs and uh, all sorts of other jobs that uh, come with big stadium projects like this. That being said, I see these projects and it makes me want to gag It makes me want to gag. A billion dollars here, a billion dollars there. Well, a billion here, a billion there. Pretty soon you're going to be talking real money. Think of what could be done with a billion dollars. Think of all the bologna sandwiches that could be given to the homeless. Think of all the health care that could be provided to people that can't afford health care. Think of the um, uh, money for veteran housing, for homeless veterans. Think of the suicide prevention that could be done for veterans that are struggling with things like uh, depression. And we really want to say that the best use of public money to the tune of a billion dollars is to build a sports stadium. Look, I I am uh, I'm a Met fan. But if the Mets were to say to the city of New York or the state of New York, you know what? Give us a billion dollars of taxpayer money or we're leaving, we're going to California like the Dodgers and Giants did, you know what I'd say? Good riddance. Good riddance. You don't want to be here? We don't want you. We don't, as taxpayers, need to give you a billion dollars that you can then rake in hundreds of millions of dollars that the public doesn't get. You get it. I hate this. I absolutely hate it. And now... Uh, the problem with what Hochul did and what the Raiders did in Vegas is it widened the Overton window of what's considered acceptable. It used to be, if you were a private sector, a sports team owner, whether whether it's James Dolan and the Knicks, whether it's the Buffalo Bills ownership, whether it's uh, the Las Vegas Raiders ownership, you were able to be shamed. Now, these owners have no shame. You're spending a billion dollars for these sports stadiums. What are you getting in return? Do you even get a discount on tickets? You don't. I hate these. And unfortunately, I think this is only going to continue and probably get worse. Uh, if you want to weigh in, you can do so. 800 848 9222 That's 800 848 Ninety-two twenty-two. Jeff Kendig is a Nashville resident. He spoke with News Channel 5 in Nashville about this uh, Tennessee Titans stadium deal. I mean,
18: we have stormwater issues. We have supply issues as far. There's lots of infrastructure issues in Nashville. The stadium doesn't seem like it was
2: there a few weeks ago. I don't know. It seems like a prioritization thing. He's exactly right. The priorities of the politicians that make these decisions are way out of whack. And I don't know the details of what happened in Tennessee, but I would guess that the same thing happened in Tennessee that happened in New York and Las Vegas. The multimillionaire and billionaire owners of these sports teams donate millions of dollars to the politicians that get to make these decisions. The politicians are thrilled To, one, win over the sports fan that gets to keep their hometown team. Two, they get the big campaign contributions and maybe whatever other ancillary deals might be involved from a private sector point of view. And all it costs them is hundreds of millions of dollars in taxpayer money. I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. 800-848-9222 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. We're going to talk with Chuck Darrow in about 15 minutes uh, for the AC report. It's still, we still call it the AC report even though we do cover issues more broadly related to entertainment and gambling and hotels and stuff in a lot of the other markets that we're in because, you know, I don't know. That's our, It's like a New York minute. I've actually – I've kind of I've made the AC report a, a national sort of a commentary on uh, all things going on in, in and around Atlantic City, but also elsewhere. 800 848 Ina is in Manhattan. Hello, Ina. Hello, John. Thanks for taking Frank, my excellent.
16: call. Um, that gentleman you had on, I oh, oh, what, what, oh, what's his name?
2: Uh, Gerald Salente.
16: Yes. Oh, he's right on. I wish he would come and take over New York and run the city and the state. Because, um what he said is true, and I appalled him, but I just want to comment on that. and I wish you would all get him on, on daytime daytime talk show because he's, he would he had a lot to contribute to the public and let people know what's really the, the deal. i I don't think the deal with russia is is, is good. It's going to cause a lot of uh, lies. And it's about t- time America stopped stop sending the people to, to fight war and get killed. Look at look at um Queen Elizabeth. She's a lady, she's a woman. And even on her deathbed, she ran the, the country. She didn't go into so many wars and lose so many soldiers and stuff. My father fought in World War Two, come back home without a scratch. He was a fighting Royal Air Force. So, you know, they've got to get it together and get sensible people and intelligent people and people who know history to run this country, not not fool like, like the mayor, mayor,
2: mayor, what's his name? You got me, uh, know. Ina. You got me. Ina, thank you. I appreciate that. We don't want to give all their, uh, you know, we have a nice cadre of guests that we have on regularly on the overnight show, so we don't want the, all those daytime shows taking all our guests because you wouldn't then if they did, you wouldn't need to stay up to hear the folks that are on this show. I mean, part of the reason that it's so much fun to listen to this show is because we have folks that you really won't hear throughout the rest of the day. So we don't want to incur I mean, look, obviously people can go on whatever shows they want, but I do think it's something special about our show that you can hear only certain people uh, that you can't hear on uh, any of the other shows. I, I I do like that. I must say. All right. Um, I did want to mention because believe it or not, a number of you had inquired about uh, my adventures in preparing a meal yesterday. So here's what what happened. Rachel, um, my wife, Rachel, got you know a little annoyed with me kind of bristling by saying I don't cook. Whenever she says that I don't cook, I do cook. I, I mean, I can cook. I just choose not to. And so she said, well, maybe one day next week, she had this conversation with me last week, you can make dinner for Carmine and me. And this way I won't be able to say that anymore. Great idea. Okay. This is definitely one of those ideas that sounded much better in concept than in practice. But, uh, and she said, you know what that involves? That means you're going to have to go to the grocery store and get all the ingredients for whatever it is you're making. Great, honey. No problem. And then she remarks to me, maybe about 15 minutes before I leave for the grocery store yesterday. I'm also going to um, ask you to pick up a couple of other things that we need that were out of eggs and one or one or two other things. Trash bags. Great. Fine. Okay. So... Uh, obviously, my I had two missions yesterday. One was to buy a Powerball ticket. And if you're just tuning in, it looks like I did not win the Powerball. Spent $20 on tickets, did not win. And two was this this thing. And it's funny. You know how you have stress dreams about uh, taking a test or uh, showing up late for work? In my case, the stress dream is always showing up late for the radio show and oversleeping. But yesterday, when I was asleep, I was having stress dreams about cooking dinner, about that it wouldn't go well, they wouldn't have any of the ingredients, that I would ruin the dinner, whatever the case may be. So <clears throat> I wake up. First thing I do is do a beeline to my voluminous library of books. I have uh, I have a book collection, which is just phenomenal. And um, I think, uh, you know, who, who my heirs, if they have money, and the money's not used to keep me fry, cryogenically frozen, they could start a library with my books. They call it the Morano Library, right? So anyway, I go to all the cookbooks on my shelf. and I said, all right, you know, I'll make a couple of different courses. I'll take one recipe from this cookbook, one recipe from that cookbook, one from this. So I gather a couple of my favorite cookbooks. First one I reach for is the Ralph Nader family cookbook which I've made some stuff before, and it's good. And it's based on recipes from his parents' restaurant. We've talked about it when he was on the show. It's great stuff in there. So I said, you know what? I'll make the first course one of the things that's in there. So I look through there, and I said, what looks simple? And they have a recipe for lentil soybean soup. And it says right underneath the title, a simple, satisfying dish. I said, that's great. That's what I need. I need simple and satisfying. So I, can, I take a photograph of that, and I put it on my phone to be ready to go get the uh, ingredients. Okay. Then what am I going to do? Let me look through. I have a, a cookbook that was written by Paul Servino and his wife. Pasta, Pinot, uh, Pasta, Pinot and Parties or something. I don't know. It's good. It's a good book. It's entertainingly written too. So I said, let me look through there. Uh, My wife doesn't eat meat, so let me pick either a pasta dish or a fish or something. And it looked like they had a pretty good recipe for grilled swordfish. So I say, my wife's working in her office and I'm going through these books and entertaining Carmine at the same time. And so I shout to my wife who's in her office, I say, Honey, do you eat swordfish? And she replies, I think so. I said, hmm, that's a big risk. If she's not sure she's going to eat swordfish, do I really want to make the swordfish recipe in this book and risk her not eating it? It's a big risk. So, but I but I want to take something that I'm going to have to make a side. So I look at one of the other recipes. They have a nice recipe for broccoli, Rob. I said, I eat Take a snapshot of that. Broccoli Rob recipe. They call it in the book. um, Roasted Broccoli Rob with Garlic. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Then, I feel like I'm on a roll now. Uh, David Burke, the celebrity chef David Burke. He's got a cookbook that he gave me that he signed to me, which was very nice. I go through this book, and I look through all the fish recipes, and there's some great stuff in there. And... Very quickly, I realized that every single recipe in this book is beyond my capability. I mean, he's talking about uh, ginger purees, and there's there's all sorts of stuff that you have to make before you can even make the food. I said, whoa, whoa. And then I find another cookbook, and I don't remember the name of it, but it didn't really have an author. It wasn't a celebrity author or something. And uh, it's it's basically a simple cookbook. It's uh, I forget what it's called, but it's a, a cookbook— that's designed for a whole bunch of simple recipes. And they have a recipe for herb-crusted cod. Preparation time, 10 minutes. Cooking time, 15 to 20 minutes. Great! So now, I am thinking, this is going surprisingly well. Meanwhile, keep in mind, I haven't done anything yet. All I've done is select recipes. And in my brain, budgeted the time. That's all. So I said, "All right, well, I wasn't going to make dessert... But now that I have such a handle on the first course and the entree, I'm going to go out and pick a dessert recipe too. So I have this this cookbook, and uh, I actually bought it as an adult, but it's similar to a cookbook I had as a kid. It's a superhero cookbook. So I said, let me pick a dessert from this superhero cookbook. And I like this superhero cookbook because they're all recipes that is basically uh, for – food that you can make as a child or food that's designed to be made for children. So I, um, find the plastic man pudding. The stretchy, colorful coating on this dessert makes it just the right after dinner treat for plastic man. Great. So say goodbye to my wife. She says, all right, uh, how do you want me to give you the list of things that you need? to pick up at the grocery store, however you want it. Great, I'll text it to you. So she texts me. I take Carmine in tow, but I didn't think I had any cash. So I said, all right, I'm going to have to stop at the bank and get some cash so I could buy my Powerball tickets first. So Carmine and I stop at the bank because, for whatever reason, I'm having a difficult time with my ATM card currently. It replaced it, and since it replaced it, I can't use it. It's it's a, it's a big to do. That's a story for another day. Whatever. So, I go to the bank, get $20. Got my $20 in cash. Head on over to the grocery store. And um, my wife tells me there's gar- there's uh, shopping bags, there's reusable shopping bags in the trunk. Great. So, I know that the ingredients I'm purchasing it's not going to take a lot and I, I haven't looked at her text message yet. But I know that um, she said I'm only going to get a couple of things. So I grab two of the two shopping bags. There's ten back there. I grab two shopping bags. And I'm holding Carmine. I put him in the, the grocery cart. And um, we're, we got a parking spot very far away from the grocery store. And I start wheeling him to the grocery store. And somebody in the parking lot stops us. Because, you know, he's a very handsome child, so people are always eager to stop him and say hello to him and compliment me and, you know, and him and everything. And we get into a small talk conversation with this lady, and that's that. And then we are approaching the threshold of the grocery store, and I look at the text message my wife has sent me, the SMS text message, and I see she sent me a lot of stuff. She sent me a whole grocery list, a whole shopping list. I mean, she's sending me uh, trash bags, eggs, egg whites, bananas, granola. I mean, it's a whole bunch of things on here. So now I'm just panicked, and I'm I'm now aware that the fact that she has only that that I have to pick up avocados single select bananas, granola, eggs, egg whites, cottage cheese, fat-free, sugar-free yogurt, canned cannelloni beans, canned carrots, canned corn, peanut butter, a whole grain bread, sugar-free vitamin water, bubbly, Scott 1000 toilet paper, draw string, 13-gallon trash bags, and frozen Morningstar chicken patties. I have to pick up all that before I get any of my ingredients. I now know I don't have enough bags. So I think about, do I walk all the way back to the car... To get the additional reusable shopping bags. Ultimately, I don't want to get caught in the small talk conversation with that lady again in the parking lot. So I don't, get the, I don't go and get the additional shopping bags. So I have only two on my person. And then for the next 45 to 60 minutes, I proceed to go all over this grocery store looking for all the items that I just listed. And it was surprisingly difficult because I don't know where anything is. There's nobody around who can help you really uh, find things, it seems. Nobody seems particularly eager to help. And so uh, I ultimately find everything. And you know what throws me is there's, there's the same product in multiple different places. You go You go to the – there's a thing that says bread and rolls. Well, okay, they don't. I don't see they have whole grain bread, but they have multi grain paninis, sliced panini. Is that acceptable? Do I get that? Do I keep looking? All right, I'll keep looking. And then there's a whole separate bread section. There's all this weird stuff over there at the grocery store. So I get all her stuff. And at this point, Carmine has now been there an hour. He's starting to cry. And um, the line is out the door for this grocery store. And I'm now holding him because he got tired of being wheeled around in the shopping cart. So, um, then I start looking for my ingredients. Oh, and my wife says, if you're getting fish, don't get it at the grocery store. You got to go to the fish store. It'll be fresher, which I was planning on doing anyway. So, I uh, get all this other stuff. And it is surprisingly difficult to get all this other stuff. And now, it's been it's an hour and a half that I'm there. And... I asked the guy, hey, do you have um, broccoli rob? Or where can I find the broccoli rob? Oh, we're out of it. You're out of broccoli rub. <sighs> so now this is not going well. This is not going. Well. I've given up on making dessert. I'm not making the plastic man pudding. And I get everything that I can for the broccoli rob. I'm thinking, should I stop at a different place? Should I substitute with something? I get everything uh, for the uh, cod with uh and the cod was going to be served served with some whole whole be- green beans, and I look for the lentils and as I'm looking in the lentil recipe it calls for not only lentils which I found but it calls for soybeans and I'm looking for soybeans and I can't find soybeans and then I keep looking and I say um well oh and now I see the recipe has that the soybeans have to soak in water for a overnight for a day so obviously i can't make this soup if i have to have the soybeans soaking in water overnight so i said well maybe maybe that's optional maybe it's just recommended that they soak overnight and i uh i said all right i'm gonna get these soybeans and i'm gonna soak them for an hour and hopefully that'll be sufficient and um (laughs) Sure enough, I can't find the soybeans. Even the, my aborted plan is not working. So then I said, all right, screw it. And this is not going how I in- imagined it. It's taking much longer than I imagined. And I just get some canned vegetable soup, which I hate to do, but I got some canned vegetable soups. And I got all the other ingredients for the broccoli Rob, and for the cod. And all of her stuff. Then I go into pay for this stuff. There's six bags worth of stuff. And I had to get four uh, brown paper bags worth of stuff in addition to the two reusable bags we had. Fine. So we leave. Carmen and I, we have to then stop at the fish store on the way home. I go in there. All right, Mr. Fishmonger, do you have uh, cod? No, I'm sorry, we sold out. So they sold out a cod. So uh, I know my wife is iffy on the swordfish. We have salmon all the time, and I had just had salmon the previous night. So what should I get? I said, let me get some flounder. That strikes me as being cod-ish. So I buy the flounder, and I was going to use the same recipe for the cod for the flounder. But then I'm concerned that maybe the thickness of the cod, that recipe, and the cooking time won't work for this flounder. So... I'm now then looking up easy online, easy recipes for flounder. And, you know, I find one. Find one that's good and I, w- that works with all the ingredients I have. So I'm going with that. I'm heating up this, uh, this, this soup. And I, m- my timing is all screwed up because I want everything to be ready around the same time. And uh, meanwhile, I put the fish in to bake, and I haven't started working on the broccoli wrap yet. So I look then at the green beans that I was initially going to serve with the cod. Um, and I said, well, look, there's a recipe on the back of the can of these whole green beans. Let me just use this recipe because it's all stuff that I had. It's breadcrumb, it's garlic, it's lemon. And uh, I go ahead and, and use the green bean recipe that's on the back of this can. And um, I make the flounder using one of these online flounder recipes I didn't do it exactly. I, I didn't follow the instructions exactly. But lo and behold, even though we didn't have the broccoli rabe, um, we made do. And Rachel gave us, uh, Carmine and I, pretty high marks, thankfully. So uh, I, all in all, it was a success. Really? But I have all these ingredients for things that we didn't make. So I'm going to try to again, maybe on Friday, to purchase the cod and use that cod recipe. And I'm going to try again for this soybean lentil soup. And I gotta try and find these soybeans. Clearly, the grocery store that I was at didn't work. I'm gonna try and find these soybeans, let them soak overnight, and give that lentil recipe a uh, a another go of it on Friday. So that's that's where we were. It was very stressful, remarkably time consuming. Um, I do think probably we saved some money as opposed to just uh, going to a restaurant or something. But um, it, all in all, it was a happy ending because. Rachel had minimal complaints. Speaking of happy endings, it is something that I always hope for whenever I end up in Atlantic City that uh, it ends with a quite a bit of a jackpot. Well, it turns out Atlantic City is betting the farm on cannabis. We're going to talk to Chuck Darrow, who's a veteran casino reporter, in just a minute. And he's going to tell us not only what's happening in Atlantic City, but where that fits into what's going on in the rest of the country in terms of uh, hospitality, tourism, dining, nightlife, and so forth. Love talking to Chuck Darrow, and uh, he's going to join us straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Frank, Marano. Frank Marano. This is the AC Report.
9: Well, it blew up the chicken man in Philly last night. And they blew up his house too. Down on the boardwalk, they're ready for a fight to see what them racket boys can do now there's trouble busting in from out of state and the da can't get no relief
8: gonna be a rumble on Palmer promenade and the gambling commissioners hanging on by the skin of his teeth everything dies baby
9: he comes back Put your makeup on Stitch your hair up and meet me tonight in Atlantic
2: City This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno time for our weekly look at one of the most interesting communities in the world. Atlantic City, New Jersey. and I can't think of a better person to look at it with. Than Chuck Darrow, veteran journalist who has covered the casino industry for many years. Currently, he's writing for bettersinsiders.com and Sun Newspapers of South Jersey. Chuck, it is great to talk with you. It has been way too long.
10: Oh, man, has it been way too long. And uh, top of the morning to you and uh, your listeners
2: and our listeners. Absolutely. Thank you. Great to be back. uh, It is great to have you back. Uh, So the last time I was in Atlantic City, it had just been announced That uh, Joe Lupo, the uh, the grand poobah over at uh, Hard Rock, was going to be moving on uh, to manage a, I think, a property in Nevada, and uh, I know they have a new CEO, and the Tropicana Casino in Atlantic City has a new CEO. Who are these guys? Who are the new CEOs? What does it mean for the people that visit Atlantic City?
10: Well, um, that probably remains to be seen. um, Certainly, the more significant post. Is that of CEO at Hard Rock, which is, you know, arguably uh, the uh, top tier or the the, you know the prime, the premier uh, property in casino hotel property in Atlantic City these days. They have done a spectacular job um, since it reopened. Of course, it was the uh, Trump Taj Mahal for. Twenty one about 24 years, I guess. I'm not very good at math, especially at this hour of the morning. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was really beat up and had gone to seed, as they say. And uh, Hard Rock, and actually Hard Rock International, the seminal um, Indian tribe out of South Florida, uh, which uh, owns the Hard Rock brand, Hard Rock International brand, that is, and they swooped in with oh five hundred or so million dollars, and literally transformed that property into a real jewel, uh, with an emphasis on entertainment. You know, for what? Let's see, two thousand. Once again, math about twenty years almost close to twenty years. Borgata was absolutely the entertainment capital of um, Atlantic of Atlantic City, and really to some degree the East Coast outside of uh, New York City, probably and uh today i think the argument can be made that there are more a list headliners not to mention all the other entertainment they have at, at hard rock but the point is that that was all the doing of joe lupo who has um uh, blown the coop and is uh, i guess at this point ensconced on the strip in las vegas where he is the ceo of what will ultimately be the hard rock hotel casino out there it is now the mirage and uh One of the controversial parts of that plan, though I don't believe Joe had anything directly to do with it, I think the decision was made before they appointed him to that position, they are demolishing the iconic Mirage volcano in order to build another guitar-shaped hotel tower like the one they have at their flagship property in Hollywood.
2: What was like, the Mirage uh, owned by the Wynn Corporation or, or uh, it was the Mirage Corporation? They were their own
10: thing? No, it was, it, it was built by Steve Wynn, and it was truly a game changer uh, in that it was the property that turned the casino business, which generally was all about casino revenue, and everything else pretty much was comped as long as a player was playing, and the mirage really was the the property that turned the gaming industry into a cash business to a large degree was it a
2: surprise that uh, that they would sell uh, such an iconic casino well, uh, well
10: let's yeah well let me get to that um no the it, the mirage um had i believe for many years been an MGM property ah, i see yeah they MGM got it from Steve Wynn built it And uh, it became, um, yeah, I think I'm almost positive it was, uh, you know, most recently an MGM property. And uh, because Steve Wynn, of course, had to get out of the business because of uh, allegations of uh, sexual misconduct with employees.
2: Right. uh, But even he he had left MGM even before his scandal and started his own thing. It was a merger. Yeah, I believe
10: it was MGM
2: Wynn. At All right. One so, um, the, uh, so Joe Lupo is gone, and so, yeah, so uh, Joe Lupo.
10: But Joe, you know, Joe Lupo um, is a tough act to follow because he also guided Borgata for many years, and he was an entertainment guy, and he's the one who, as much as anyone, built Borgata into the entertainment, um, you know, stronghold that it was for a decade plus, and then went over to Hard Rock in 2018 when it opened. And um, his successor is a gentleman named Anthony LaFranca, and uh, it's – I I, I believe that Joe left kind of – he left a legacy to be sure, but it certainly was a very successful game plan. I don't know how much innovation or how much – not so much innovation, but uh, diverting from the game plan, from the blueprint that has been so successful for Hard Rock – in Atlantic City uh, I think he's more of a, it's more of a steward stewardship perhaps mm-hmm. I mean, I, it remains to be seen he's only been in office there maybe a couple of months I believe probably right around uh, right after Labor Day maybe right before so of course it'll be a while before we see um, any you know what what happened is under his stewardship but I do know that um, they are doubling down to, <laughs> to use an appropriate phrase in this case on entertainment, um, my sources tell me that uh, their budget for 2023 um, for entertainment something like thirty million dollars. So I think you'll see more of the same, but I think you'll perhaps see even a uh, you know a, a burrowing down, go, you know, going drilling down deeper into this uh, live entertainment strategy that they have, which is a great thing. And so, course. what
2: what's happening at Tropicana?
10: yeah tropicana uh of course a couple of years ago was one of the properties the caesar's properties that um well uh, uh purchased what what happened was that a company called el dorado gaming out of reno nevada uh had owned had bought they had bought the uh, tropicana several years ago from uh, billionaire investor carl Icahn, who also was the one who closed the taj mahal and uh, then a little bit later on, El Dorado went and bought Caesar's Entertainment. So now Tropicana is under the Caesar's umbrella, along with with Hara, Harris and Caesar's in Atlantic City. And they just appointed a guy named Joe Joseph. I uh, you know, he goes by formally Joe, but I know him as Joe Junta, who has been a Caesar's employee. And management type, not just an admin. He wasn't dealing craps or anything, but he's been an executive uh, at Harrah's and Caesars for about 20 years. He's a real good man. Guys, uh, knows knows the business inside out, upside down. And I haven't had a chance. I'm looking. Uh, we're trying to get together, so I can't say that I've picked his brains, but I hope to do that uh, very shortly. But um, the Tropicana is a real diamond in the rough. I've always thought that. It is probably the most complete property in Atlantic City because in addition to a very spacious casino, uh, one of the great casino showrooms, not only on the East Coast, but probably in the entire country, Mm. my understanding has always been that the Trop Theater, which holds about 2,000 people, has the largest proscenium stage um, outside of Radio City. Uh, but it also has, of course, the quarter, which is the dining, retail, and entertainment complex. And there's a whole bunch of things going on. And so a couple of things have opened there this year and a couple more uh, already, the Wild Honey Tavern um, and Barbecue Joint. I forget the name. Yeah, I, I re- I'm them. really
2: looking forward to trying Hash House or Go-Go. I've been to the ones yeah. in Nevada several times. It's a great spot for yeah, breakfast.
10: That's opened. Um also I might be I don't think Hash House is in the quarter because I haven't been there yet It's Drop. Um I think it's on, a part of the actual uh the older part ah. of, off the boardwalk. Uh, but but and there's also a Gin Jin Ricky's, which is a piano bar that opened within the past three or four oh, weeks. Oh that's
2: cool. I gotta and, check that out.
10: Yeah, and there's also uh uh on the books uh something called the Royce Social which is kind of a, just a, a bar hangout. There'll be TVs. There'll be all kinds of games, board games, and uh, I guess billiards and ping pong, things like that, also some live entertainment. But the TROP, for reasons, uh, it's never been – it's ever really I, – I don't think it's, it's ever really fulfilled its promise. And I'm hoping that Caesars, which has invested uh, upwards of $400 million over the past year or so in Atlantic City – um, although the lion's share of that has gone to Caesars itself, um, I, I hope that Joe is, again, given the resources to really turn the truck into mm. the kind of property I, I've always thought it could be and should be. So that'll that'll be really interesting. Certainly, uh, their entertainment schedule is, is not the greatest Hopefully, they'll find uh, a little more use for that beautiful theater they have.
2: Yeah, no, uh, well said. Um, uh, you know, fingers crossed for, for everybody's sake, especially his. Uh, speaking of other properties owned by Caesars, obviously, their namesake is Caesars. Uh, Caesars is doing the same sort of investment in terms of rehabilitating and modernizing their property that a lot of the other properties in Atlantic City are doing. They're adding a Gordon Ramsay's Hell's Kitchen, and I'm embarrassed to say this as a New Yorker, but I've never been to the Nobu in Manhattan. They're adding a Nobu at Caesars as well. When, When are they slated to open?
10: Well, okay, so so Hell's, not Hell's Kitchen has actually been open for I guess since sometime in September, and I haven't been there yet, but that will uh end tomorrow night. I I have uh, oh. been invited to the media event there tomorrow night, so looking forward to that. And they are taking uh, I guess about a week or so ago they began taking reservations for Nobu, which indicates that the opening a soft opening will is Imminent. Uh, I would be surprised if another you know week from or so from today uh, it wasn't up and running. But the what's really interesting about the Nobu project and the partnership, and Nobu of course is um, owned and operated by the hospitality company um, whose partnership includes Robert De Niro. So we're you know, hoping everybody's hoping that Bob, as as you know, as we call him, <laughs> right. Uh, but no, we're hoping that that you know everybody's hoping that he will make an appearance at some point. But that, this is only phase one of the nobuization of Caesars, because as we speak, work is being done on I believe probably the top four floors of the uh, main hotel tower, at Caesars, the Centurion Tower. Which will be turned into a super high-end Nobu hotel, so kind of a hotel oh. in a hotel. Well, that, that's
2: context, kind of the same is...
10: concept with the
2: Borgata and the Water
10: Club, right? It is... Yes and no. Yes, I mean, I mean, ultimately, I would say that that's a pretty, a pretty fair assessment. The only difference is that Water Club is an actual; um, it's 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 a property unto itself. It's its own tower. I see that is a part because uh, technically and sort of philosophically, you could spend two or three nights or whatever at water club and never really set foot in the sideboard. Got it. Gotcha. Well, that's that's certainly
2: true. But, yeah. We're talking with Chuck Darrow. Uh, he's been a veteran journalist covering this sort of thing for a long time. You could read him at betters insiders dot com or any of the sun newspapers of South Jersey. And, uh, uh, Chuck, I've noticed – I was in Atlantic City maybe three or four weeks ago, and I noticed walking the boardwalk, you really are just blown away by the stench of marijuana. And I know that uh, recreational cannabis is the way New York and New Jersey and a bunch of other places are going. It was the case in uh, Nevada when I was out there last year. What does this mean for the future of Atlantic City and the region economically?
10: Well – Okay, so unlike so many municipalities, I don't know how it is in New York, but here in New Jersey, while 60 percent, give or take, of the uh, residents, voter voters anyway, approved the legalization uh, referendum that was on the ballot back in 2020, um, the fact is that the majority of the states, 5 I think it's 521 municipalities, have so far voted down licensing uh, cannabis establishments, be they retail or grow facilities. Um, but Atlantic City, as much as any, I know Jersey City is pretty invested in it, but the mayor of Atlantic City, Marty Smalls, has gone on record multiple times with the, his intent is to make Atlantic City a, truly a cannabis capital. And uh, it's they just recently approved a couple of dispensaries, my my idea years ago, several years ago, was that they should turn Bader Field, which of course is a historic old airport, the first facility of its kind in the world to actually be called an airport back in the early 20s, and it's sort of just an open space now that's used for an occasional big concert or tattoo festival, you know, beer festival things like that. I think they should turn it into a state of the art grow, growing growing the facility, sort of you know make it the East Coast capital of cannabis. And also maybe have part of it as a cannabis museum because the history of, of it is kind of interesting. But I don't. That's just you know that's just my opinion. That said, as um, Atlantic City is going all in on cannabis as far as they can go. Now, um, the issue or sort of the sticking point is that thus far, and this is going to change. It's not a matter of if; it's a matter of when. A year, two years, five years, but it, it's going to happen. But right now, there is a great reluctance in the in the gaming industry in Atlantic City to get involved with this. Mm. And you know, the to me the opportunities are, are I don't know if they're endless, but they're certainly uh, varied. Clearly, I mean, it would make great sense to sort of for a casino to open up some sort of Willie Nelson branded country and western oh sure and consumption lounge. Um, you know, if you want to partner with Snoop Dogg. Uh, There's all these celebrity, you know, uh, celebrities who are getting into the cannabis industry, and it just seems natural, you know, um, or I'm sure you're aware that having chefs, you know, famous chefs, the Bobby Fleas and Wolfgang Pucks of the world come in and cook dinner for their uh, premium players uh, or high rollers, if you will is an old established tradition, not only in Atlantic City, but casinos throughout the country. And the Vice Network on cable a year or two ago actually had a whole series. I think it was called Cooking with – no, it was called Bong, B-O-N-G, Appetit. Oh, and it was boy. basically a cooking show except everything that was cooked was infused with
2: cannabis. That, that's wild. You're right. There's no yeah, shortage of so- opportunity. Hey, Chuck, we're going to have to leave it there. The next time we talk, you've got to give us a review of uh, – I understand AEW Wrestling is coming back to Boardwalk Hall with uh, Mike Tyson as one of the people that's going to be doing some commentary. So you've got to keep your uh, – Eyes and ears yep. open for Iron mm-hmm. Mike and his return to Atlantic City. He's had some uh, historic, historic moments in Atlantic City, that's for sure. Chuck Darrow will be reading you in bettersinsider.com. Thanks so much for the time this morning.
10: Hey, anytime. You know that. Uh,
2: I love it. Uh, if you oh, want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight.
2: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Coming up uh, next hour, we are going to talk with the one and only Brian Kilmeade. He had an interview with Herschel Walker yesterday, which made a lot of news. Uh, So we're going to talk with him, and uh, we can get his take on exactly where he sees that U.S. Senate race going. And uh, I can't wait to talk with Brian about the uh, the World Series, because— for the first time since 1956 when Don Larson threw a no-hitter there has been a no-hitter in the World Series which is incredible absolutely incredible and hats off to the Houston Astros fan this has turned out to be quite a World Series so it's going to go to a, a game 5 now and we will see uh, we'll see where that goes because uh, that's going to be interesting uh, that is for Sure. All right. Um, it is interesting. One of the other things that uh, we're very focused on in the Morano household is, you know, we like to be neighborly, right? So and so do the rest of my neighbors. So the other day, um, we uh, maybe a week or so ago, my neighbor across the street, he says, hey, Frank, do you want some firewood? Now, we go through a lot of firewood. We do outdoor fires. We do indoor fires. I said, uh, I said, sure. Sure, absolutely. Take it. And he he says to me, he he and his son are bringing this wood up to my porch. And they said, well, you know, it's not cut. I said, oh, that's okay. I have an axe, which is true. I can cut it. Lo and behold, this is not firewood that needs to be cut. This is a giant tree stump. So I try my hand last uh, Saturday. At chopping this firewood, and I take my axe and I am hacking away at this uh, tree trunk for 20 minutes. It looks like I used a a toothpick. It made no dent in this tree trunk. So I think. Uh, so then I took my uh, buzz saw and I said, "Let me use my buzz saw, which is not really supposed to be used for that kind of thing. That's supposed to be used for chopping two by fours and stuff." And immediately when I start using it, sawdust starts flying everywhere. And uh, and Rachel says, well, don't you think you should put some goggles on? Now I'm covered in sawdust, obviously. So I pause and I said, you know what? Not only am I going to go out and purchase some goggles so that this sawdust doesn't douse my eyes, I'm going to go borrow a chainsaw. So that's today's project, a chainsaw and goggles. Hopefully it takes less time than dinner did. Your influence counts, so use it.
0: This is the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
2: Good morrow, everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. If you're listening to this program live right now, happy to have you, by the way. Thank you for listening. Then that makes you in the minority. Because do you know what the rest of the people in this time zone are doing right now? They're sleeping. And... You're either listening to me because you work odd hours like I do or because you can't sleep or because you're making the wise decision to delay sleep or so that you could hear me or because, you know, any of the a number of other circumstances lead you to be awake at this time. We are constantly reminded by mattress and bedding companies that we spend about a third of our lives in bed. So the exact composition of our little nighttime cocoon is very important. Mike Lindell from the My Pillow company is always talking about this. He's got the giza bed sheets. He's got the pillow itself. He's got all the the mattress topper. puts a lot of effort into making sure people can sleep comfortably. And I've noticed that the act of how we sleep is very subjective. Someone may prefer a uh, a, a down pillow. Uh, someone else may like a uh, memory foam pillow. Someone else might like a my pillow, right? <laughs> but now we are entering a whole new era in terms of making beds. Do you remember millennials? Millennials are the people that supposedly killed off milk, they supposedly killed off telephone calls, they killed off a bunch of things that were part of society for a long time. Well, now, there is a huge debate about how we're sleeping because the millennials, or as I, I love when people call them the millenniums, but the millennials are in the process of redefining how people make their bed. And it all has to do with the latest betting debate, it's been covered by the Wall Street Journal and a bunch of other places, the flat top sheet. To its fans, the top sheet is an essential part of a made bed a crisp, clean buffer between the body and the blanket. I have to tell you, I love it. I am a top sheet person. I love that top sheet. Sometimes, especially during the summer, I, I toss off the blanket, I just put that top sheet on I love it. But, to its detractors, that same top sheet is a superfluous distraction that's a pain to arrange in the morning and annoyingly bunches around one's feet at night. You know, that's also true. Uh, before I lived with my wife, I think maybe, yeah, I'm going to say, before I lived with my wife, I never made my bed. I think I made my bed, uh, no exaggeration, in my entire life, 30 times before I moved in mo- with my wife. Rachel, she is a making bed proponent. And now, so, now I make an effort to make the bed, or at least put a blanket over the Uh, sheet because the cats go in there and I don't want the cats to get cat hair all over our sheets top or otherwise and I apologize I still have this bit of a cold that I'm sure you hear I'm on it's on its last legs though I should be back to normal by tomorrow but where do you stand on the top sheet because the top sheets detractors view it as just a waste Worse than a waste, they view it as a hindrance. But the folks that, like me, enjoy that top sheet, we really enjoy that top sheet. And uh, so the Wall Street Journal explored the generational divide on this question. More traditional Generation X and baby boomers defend the top sheet. Millennials and Gen Z are kicking it off. Uh, the Wall Street Journal reporter that did this article, Rory Satrin, she talks about how in her own family, that's true. Her baby boomer parents still make the bed with a top sheet. She does not use one. Suzanne Dewin, the founder and interior designer of Maison Maison Design in Houston, said, I'm sure it's generational. And her bedscapes for both clients and herself over the years are... Proper starched perfection with pleated bed skirts and throw pillows. But recently, her clients, high school and college age children, have been requesting no top sheet arrangements for their beds. And uh, you remember that line? I'm sorry I didn't pull the audio. But you remember that line when Harry met Sally? uh, When it's clear that Sally does not use a top sheet. And I think she asks Harry when she calls him, do you use a top sheet? Um, The arguments for the top sheet are, and this is what this woman that's quoted in the journal says, that it's more sanitary. And that's what I think we go with in our household. Because you don't want to have to launder these high-end duvet covers every week. It's also more economical if you're not always washing the blanket or the quilt or the duvet covers. If you're spending $3,500 on a monogrammed duvet cover with all this beautiful embroidery, you certainly don't want to send that to the laundry every week. But not everyone has such elegant bedding. More and more easy-peasy, direct-to-consumer sheet companies are offering no top sheet betting bundles to address this burgeoning demographic. So, uh, I'd love to know, one, where you come down on this. Are you pro-top sheet or anti-top sheet? And two, do you think it is generational? And I have to wonder why, if it is generational, why? Why did the millennials and the Gen Zers all of a sudden say, you know what? We've been sleeping this way for 100 years. Our parents, our grandparents, they all use the top sheet. We're not doing it anymore. What What brings about that decision? And I know we actually, as far as uh, radio programs go, have a large number of millennial and Generation Z listeners. I'd love to hear from them on where they come on the top sheet. Give me a call, 800 848 Nine two two two. That's one 9222 We actually have in studio here a generational focus group. We have Matt Blaze, who I think is. Are you millennial or Gen, gen X?
1: I am a Gen X. Gen right.
2: X. Okay, and then I know Kenneth is. Are you are you millennial or Gen Z? Yeah, millennial. Millennial. Okay, so we have two generations, <laughs> uh, albeit left handed ones, in the same uh, control room. Sure. <laughs> Where do you come down on the top sheet,
1: man? Not a fan of the top sheet. Really? Did not have one. The. My mother never made my bed with a top sheet. And the first time I ever saw one was in a hotel room. That, and I, well, then I thought about it more and I thought, you know, I think my grandmother, my father's mother, might have used a top sheet, which would have made sense to that generation. But I don't like it. It, To me, I just end up sleeping on the top sheet, under the blanket, but over the top. That
2: to me is wild. I would never do that. So you like that blanket right up against your body?
1: Yes, absolutely.
2: Kenneth, what about you?
1: I actually enjoy the top sheet.
2: Whoa! Hold the phone. We have two people, (laughs) traitors to their generation here. Generation X, Matt Blaze, going with the young people and saying, see you later, top sheet. Save those sheets for Klux Klansmen. And we have Generation uh, Z, or almost, Millennial, uh, Kenneth, who says... He likes the top sheet. This is wild. Why? Do, what's your reason for liking the top sheet, if any? I just find
18: that it's a lot more comfortable because it keeps you warmer. You got that, and then you got the comforter. And I actually have an additional blanket, so I'm all wrapped up in the winter.
2: Well, okay. That's a lot of blankets. I actually feel like the top sheet, it keeps you almost a little cooler. For some reason, I feel like the fabric of the top sheet, maybe it's the sheets that we're using, but the fabric of the top sheet actually it it, ha- it provides like a little bit of a cooling layer before the warmth of the blanket but tell me where you come down on this eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 that's eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 um Alex Barnard I'm assuming it's okay for me to say this he says his girlfriend hates the top sheet and he prefers it you know I hear a lot of um marriages are breaking up over this one partner likes the top sheet another person does not this is something you've got to work out before you get married this is not something that you want to find out on your honeymoon oh no i married an anti top sheeter so that's that's where we are so uh how do you guys reconcile this alex
3: uh well basically what we have to do. I mean, I just kind of compromise and let her take the get rid of the top sheet when whenever she stays over. But um, I compensate because I kind of I kind of like having extra blankets. She hates having um, bank blankets basically at all when when she sleeps. She she likes having everything be freezing cold. Uh, all the time, so she, so I will wrap myself in a, maybe an extra blanket or two, and then she um, just has maybe like one blanket over herself and takes the top sheet, like sleeps on top of the top sheet, essentially.
2: I have to tell you, I can't imagine doing away with the top sheet. I would do away with the blanket before I do away with the top sheet. I find the top sheet, it's sort of, uh, it provides a nice little layer of protection Against the world, and uh, I would, you know, sometimes a blanket I find makes me too warm. That top sheet, whether it's with a blanket or whether it's without, I find that top sheet just perfect.
3: It always ends up, though, whenever I wake up or whenever we wake up the next day, all of the blankets have migrated to the floor. So I, it, it just it makes for an... Annoyance to have to pick everything up the next day. So, do you, yeah. have
2: you guys discussed this? Do you think this could be the one instance where you're at loggerheads perpetually? That spells
3: the end of your relationship. It, it won't spell the end of the relationship, mm-hmm. but it, it, that's it's what certain, he says now. <laughs> yeah, in twenty years, it'll be like I can't believe you still sleep with the top sheet. What do you mean you sleep with the top sheet? You know, it's a warning sign, right? Yeah, eight hundred eight
2: four eight nine two 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 one are you a top sheet person or not two do you buy that this is a generational divide because so far in our little mini focus group here in the studio it doesn't it doesn't look like that we've got we're, we've got all the generations represented and three why did people all of a sudden just decide to start abandoning the top sheet i'm i'm sticking with the top sheet Sticking with it. I don't like, not to sound like uh, George and Jerry when they stay at that hotel in uh, Los Angeles. I don't like when you stay at the hotel and the top sheet is tucked underneath the mattress. I do find that constricting. I like a loose top sheet so that I have the flexibility to have my feet go under it and so forth. But I like the top sheet there. What say you? 800 Maria is in Ossining. Uh Maria, I hope you're not in the prison. Oh, hi, Frank. Good to talk to you. Likewise. I only use um,
17: sleeping bags with nylon material because it keeps you cool all night. And even if, like, I'm in the hospital, I'll take it with me. Yeah, I can only use, like, a nylon sleeping bag to sleep on the top sheet. Well, but
2: you sleep in a bed normally, right?
17: Yeah, I sleep in a bed, but I use like the um, like the sleeping bag. They're usually made from the nylon material as my top sheet.
2: Well, you use a sleeping bag as your top sheet?
17: Yes, because it's made of nylon, which is like a really cool material against your skin. And huh. I use it over the fitted sheet. I got to tell you,
2: that sounds fascinating. I've never heard of that. I'd love to try that. Oh, it's the best sleep. Do it's you have a it's particular? So do you have a particular brand of sleeping bag that you would recommend?
17: Um, not offhand. Usually, I just go to the camping stores website and just get and a I nylon
2: like- sleeping bag.
17: Yeah, exactly. Sometimes I get the ones with, like, a little more padding, and you could unzip it like, a square so it fits fits my queen-size bed, and I put it over a fitted sheet, and it's the best sleep. Like, I can't sleep, like, without it. And I get, like, a couple for the year.
2: That's wild. Hey, thank you, Maria. Fascinating. Rob on Staten Island, where do you come down on this, Rob? I come down pretty much exactly like you.
9: Before I got married... I never made the bed. My wife makes the bed every day, like a like you went into a hotel, and I love it. And
2: I love the top sheet, especially in the summertime. Tom, great show. You having a good day? Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Sarah in Wisconsin. What about you?
19: Oh, Frank, I love being odd. I'm a baby boomer, and I have well, I never, ever, ever used the top sheet ever. I think maybe when I was married, but that was 25 years ago. And it's just so much, so much cozier and everything. I live in Wisconsin, so I have a summer duvet and a winter duvet. And having that top sheet is just a pain in the butt. I don't even like bottom sheets, but I wear them or I have them. And I never use a conventional pillow. I'll give you a little clue if you do any traveling, because I used to travel a lot. And I was going to a, an extended trip to Europe. And I was always one of these people that carried my pillow because I had an allegiance to my sleep stuff, you know, and they lost my pillow. And I'm thinking, all right, now I'm facing all this time. So from that time on, and that's also been about 25 years, I buy really fluffy towels. And I and I fold them, you know, into kind of a long rectangle and put a beautiful pillowcase over it. And it's the most comfortable thing I've ever slept on. Wait,
2: wait. So you <laughs> sleep regularly on towels as a pillow?
19: Uh, my towel is a pillow with a pillowcase. And I buy as fluffy <laughs> a towel as I can. Excuse me, but you can put it in any position you want, and it's tuckable to scrunch under your neck or whatever. And it's—I never have to worry about it. That—that is interesting,
2: Sarah. And I don't know if you've ever read the book, *The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy*. Have you read it?
19: No. Well, Uh, maybe years and years ago. Now that you mention it.
2: So, if in that book they tell any hitchhiker that a towel is the most the single most useful item in the universe and that you should always have a towel with you. And one of the uses that they, that they offer for a towel is to use it to sleep as a pillow. But I've never met someone that did this regularly. So that's wild. thanks for sharing that, Sarah Fran top sheet or no. Oh, definitely top sheet. Okay. And then what do you make of these folks that are kind of moving away from the top sheet, the Matt blazes okay. of the world. Okay. Quick, Sorry,
17: My niece, her fiance, and three friends staying at my house. I'm passing out sheets, making beds. Every one of them, mid twenties, hand me back the top sheet.
2: None of them used it. Oh, so it is generational in your experience I think, then?
9: In my experience, yes. My niece
17: tells me because for her anyway, in college, it was just too much
2: laundry and too much making uh-huh. the bed, so it was easier just to throw a, a blanket on. Well, that's it. Well, but doesn't the blanket get dirty more often? I- if you don't, use you would think it. so. You would think so. So instead of now, you're washing a blanket instead of a top sheet, right? Right. So I, don't right. I don't see yeah. what they're gaining, but I, I guess uh, even if they uh, d- even if they're washing the blanket once a month instead of once every three months, I guess that's still uh, less laundry than have to wash that top sheet every week. Oh, it's the horror of washing the top sheet. I'm right, <laughs> I don't exactly. Get it. <laughs> Neither do I, Fran. You know, that's so interesting. I didn't think of that. And I read that Wall Street Journal article and some other things, but some people are doing it for to do less laundry. That's interesting. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Brian in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Hello, Brian. Hey, good morning, Frank. Morning. I, I, I've got a different take on this. I
4: am a top sheet guy, but for some reason, and I don't remember why. I sleep
2: on top of the top sheet. Well, that makes no sense. What what are you doing that for? The top sheet is serving no purpose at all. Why not just sleep without a top sheet? Well, I I think it started because
4: I I am a top sheet guy. And I just, to your
2: point, I tuck it in, and I don't really like climbing under it. So I just kind of climb on top of it and underneath the blanket. Do you sleep by yourself or do you have a partner that you sleep with? by myself. Um so why not just skip the top sheet? You're making the bed, right? Well this this might be uh revolutionary for me. Maybe uh
4: maybe I have the worst of both worlds. I'm not enjoying the top sheet, yet I'm washing the
2: top. <laughs> right, sheet. exactly. You you're the this you're the, the, the person that makes the least amount of sense that we've spoken to. Well, this this is the content you get on the other side of midnight. This exactly, is life changing. Exactly, Brian. This is a life changing radio program. Yes. The rest of your <laughs> life, the every other sleep that you have going forward will be better off because of this radio show. Will it not? Yeah, you are you are indeed correct. First time caller, by the way. So what? what a what a breakthrough! <laughs> Wonderful. Welcome aboard. Welcome aboard. There's Thank no challenge cha- telling how I'm going to change your life the second time you call, Brian. So let's make it a habit. <laughs> thanks, thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Um Kenneth, I remember we used to let me know when there was a first time caller, but we've we've abandoned that, right? We've that's gone by the wayside, I suppose. You, All right. You've got this fancy bell now, Frank. That's right. So now now because I've got my own bell, we don't we don't get our first time caller fanfare. So be it. So be it. Um, I'd love to know what goes on in that control room. Uh, I, I I know oh, there's oh I bet a, you would oh I, I, you, oh yeah there's 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 a podcast called Behind the Glass that's on the Red Apple Audio Network and um it supposedly captures what goes on behind the glass in control rooms. I don't think it is accurate. I must say, I don't think it gives a realistic depiction of the of the things that are actually going on back there. Uh, let me say hello to David in New Jersey. Hello, David.
8: How are you doing? I I have no top sheet. And the reason I don't have a top sheet, I get tangled up in it. And uh, I'm a baby boomer. And uh, my mother didn't have a top sheet. My wife doesn't have a top sheet. We hate top sheets.
2: Oh, so you come from a long line of eschewing the top sheet.
10: Absolutely. My, but my wife is fanatic about making the bed every morning. Makes the bed in the afternoon. Makes the bed. Whatever it is, makes the bed.
2: But does she make it with a top sheet or no?
10: Of course not. No. And okay. If I had a top sheet, I would. I would get tangled up in it. Well, like like a pretzel. <laughs> I don't like it.
2: Okay. Hey, fair enough. Uh, Kathy in the East Village. What say you? Exactly. I get all scrambled
5: up if I have a top sheet. No top sheet.
2: No top sheet.
5: Top sheet ever. I I, even when I buy a new set of sheets, never use the top sheet. Just fitted, and then the comforter. Because I I also wrap the comforter around my legs. That top sheet gets me all tangled. I not no no top sheet. Making the bed is hard because I live on a. It's about a four foot, maybe three three and a half foot off the ground. So it's always a. Uh, trouble to uh, make the
2: bed anyhow. Well, I can, can, un- I can understand of... that. I can mm-hmm. understand. That. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Kathy. I didn't even know this was a thing. I just thought top sheets were standard. I had no idea th- that there's this whole culture, and I don't think it's generational. After spending the last 15 minutes talking about this, I don't think people, I don't think this is generational. I think there's always been this, underbelly of society that eschews the top sheet. And I had no idea. This is news to me. Let me squeeze in one more. Our friend Tom is in New Jersey. Hello, Tom. Hello,
8: Frank. How you doing? is great. Everything is wonderful. Good. Thank you. Good. Listen, I'm a top sheet guy. Uh, you you got you to remember, and I'm, I'm a, a baby boomer. Uh, all the guys, anybody who is in service, use the top sheet because that's the way they taught you. So everybody came back from service,
10: was used to using the top sheet. That's the first thing they did. They taught you how to make your bed. That's how they disciplined you.
2: Well, I know, but uh, uh, I think it's great just for comfort. I mean, aside from the military aspect of it, I love it. too.
10: I I agree with with that entirely. (laughs) I think think it gives you that coolness between particularly if you have, uh, you know, most percale sheets like uh, my kids.
2: Hey, uh, Tom. Thank you. Uh, t- give, give my best to uh, your sleeping partner as well. Thank you, Tom. I'll tell you what we're going to do. Brian Kilmead is waiting in the wings. Uh, those of you that are holding, if you want to continue to hold, we'll get to you. And then uh, we're going to try and give away $1,000. You want to win $1,000? Uh, all you have to do is answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. Be the seventh caller right right now. Oh, oh actually, no. No seventh caller. Yes. Here's what happened. So what happened was, uh, we'll explain it when we come back. Uh, but we're going to play the $1,000 Minute straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. With Frank Marano. Frank Marano.
2: This Brothers, very topical selection by Matt Blaze. Um, So here's what happened. A fella called in, and he was the seventh caller uh, last week, and um, he was informed by the, the brain trust that sits behind the glass that he was ineligible. And then we did a little more homework, and this guy called us on Kenneth's veto of him. Kenneth just probably didn't like the guy or something. And we found, of course, yes, he is eligible. And so we said, that's not right. He should have had the opportunity to play again. So uh, we once again have uh, playing this week's edition of...
0: The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the Thousand Dollar Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank
2: Murano. We have Brandon. Brandon, I'm glad we were able to get you back. Thanks for uh, being so understanding and so cooperative.
19: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
2: All right, so now there's a lot of expectations on you since you've gotten another opportunity to play this game. You ready to go? Yes, sir. All right, let's do it. What is the color? ...of a standard school bus? Yellow. What is the date of Christmas?
8: December 25th.
2: How many innings are in a standard baseball game? Nine. What continent is Germany on? Europe. Who wrote Hamlet?
1: Um, William Shakespeare.
2: What year was Bob Dole the Republican nominee for president?
0: um Bob Dole
2: that would have been 92. ah sorry so close yet so far 96 96 96 Bush darn it. it was Bush in 92. um you know when, oh, that's right when yeah. in doubt when in doubt um since 19 since 1952 any Republican ticket has a Nixon. A Bush, a Dole, or a Trump, just about. I mean, there's a couple of exceptions. But, uh, hey, I'm sorry, Brandon, but uh, I'm going to put you back on hold. Maybe Kenneth will give you something else, okay? All right, thank you. Thank you. Uh, thanks for being a sport. All right, without further ado, it is great to welcome back a man who is an authority on both politics, sports and radio and television, quite quite a few other things. New York Times best-selling author, Fox and Friends co-anchor, nationally syndicated radio talk show host and uh, one of the most sought after live speakers that there is, Brian Kilmeade. Hello, Brian. What's going on,
18: Frank? Don't forget uh, the paperbacks out now, The President and Freedom Fighter, it's changing America.
2: Uh, changing America is uh, <laughs> is an understatement. I uh, have uh, not yet received my signed copy of The President and the oh. Freedom Fighter, but I have I have another version. Next time I see you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure to have this with me so I can get you to sign this. And the paperback is out. What's the best way for people to go? Do you recommend they go to your website or Amazon? Or, yeah, I mean, or if what?
18: people want to personalize it, because uh, I worked at a great deal uh, in Bayshore with Barnes & Noble. So people who order around the country, it goes there. I show up once a week. And I personalize it, kind of the 1-800-Flowers thing. Oh, cool. People write in. That's great. They, they fill in the box, yeah.
2: Can they get the, your other books uh, personalized uh, through oh, yeah. that method as well?
18: Absolutely. People that care about America. You got the President Freedom Fighter, uh, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass and the Battle Save America's Soul. Sam Houston, the Alamo Avengers. Here in New York, we, we got, what, one day of Texas history? So in Texas, they get it in fourth grade, eighth grade, eleventh grade uh, about how the whole state was founded. It was a country. So I focused on Sam Houston, what happened next. And then Andrew Jackson, Miracle of New Orleans, the battle everyone told us. Got one day of that in social studies in school. I don't know if you got that. Uh, they told us we didn't have to fight that battle. It's a totally it's totally wrong. And it was a huge victory for America. We never would be invaded again. And then Thomas Jefferson took on had his first uh, war on terror. He was the first American president to deal with it. And then you have uh, George Washington's
2: Secret Six, which is all about Long Island. Uh, no, it's, uh, I've read, I think, all of your books, and uh, they're all very readable. They all tell a chapter of American history that uh, I think, that, as you said, we don't really learn in school. And if we do learn it, uh, it's definitely from a different perspective. So people can check that out at com, yeah. and you can also get some information about the live stage show. Meanwhile, uh, speaking in a history, Brian. For those of us that follow baseball, yesterday we lived through history. Uh, as for the fir- for the first time since 1956, there was a no hitter in the World Series. Here was Dusty Baker, the manager of the Houston Astros, uh, talking about that no hitter. Combining no hitters, I mean, that's hard to do
13: because usually somebody's going to give it up. Uh, you know, during that no hitter, and so you know, all our guys were 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 ready and. And strong, and that's
14: one reason why I didn't use some of those guys in that game to try to salvage that game last night, because I
2: wanted them to be fresh for today, and they'll be fresh, relatively fresh tomorrow. Series is now tied two games to two. Who do you give the edge to at this point, Brian? I still believe for some reason that
18: Phillies are going to pull this off, but... Uh, it just did remind me of the Yankees, remember the Yankees? We thought to ourselves well that, that's there uh, 's Aaron judge. I mean, how the hell could he be striking out? you know and, and how could no one be making contact and It, it did seem like the, the the team that hit five homers could not even see the ball yesterday, so uh, and Dusty Baker just told us why he 's a great manager. he doesn 't look at analytics. he said listen we 're going to lose i 'm not wasting any more arms, so well, it 's only going to be one game it 's on the road. I'm going, to come back with, I'm going to come back with a good chance to win tomorrow, and that was last night. So that guy's out won a World Series. I think there's a sentiment with that. Would not be stunned if Houston won, but if you ask me, uh, it's still Philadelphia's.
2: You know, speaking of Philadelphia and Houston, these two cities are may as well just go to war with one another because not only are they facing off in the World Series tonight, but they're facing off in Thursday night football with the Eagles undefeated going against the Houston Texans. I mean, what a season the Eagles are having so far, right? What about Philadelphia
18: overall? I mean, I think the Philadelphia Union are in the MLS finals and you have uh, the World Series with the Phillies undefeated Philadelphia Eagles. So this is pretty pretty special. And for some reason, the President of the United States takes a shot at the Eagles yesterday or two days <laughs> ago that they're obnoxious fans, which they are. But, I mean, if you're a President of the United States, does that benefit you yeah, well, when especially you're looking from to maximize
2: state. the city? Especially a swing state that you've got to run up the score in in cities like Philadelphia if not only you want to win in 2024, but if you want uh, your Senate candidate to win. So that is uh, one of the most uh, competitive Senate races in the country. And since that debate with Fetterman, it does seem like momentum is going more in Dr. Oz's way. What's your read on the Pennsylvania Senate race? I cannot believe it. I have this poll out uh, from Fox. I
18: don't know if you saw it, and it says Fetterman's winning, and I'm stunned by that. I mean, what are you thinking, Pennsylvania? Or well, we have to revisit how we do the polls? How can you watch that debate have his agenda exposed? He's Bernie Sanders in a hoodie, and ha- and he is actually leading Dr. Oz by three points, and it was four in September. Now it's three. Come on, are you kid! It was eleven in. The beginning of September, it was – so, I mean, he closed the – excuse me, in July. In September, it was four, and now it's three. I'm stunned by this.
2: Yeah, I still – and whether the polls are going for candidates that I like or not, I still don't necessarily put that much uh, stock in a lot of these polls. I I don't think that the polling models accurately – uh, reflect how voters are uh, are feeling about races. I think maybe you put a little more stock into these polls than I do.
18: We'll see what's going to happen. I mean, Emerson has Zeldin losing by eight. Trafalgar has him winning by percentage points. I'm not going to forget this, Frank. We're going to come on. Uh-huh. The next? We'll, we'll have the results by next week. Let's just remember what polls are a total a colossal waste of time or not.
2: Yeah, uh, that's for sure. Uh, you know, speaking of the uh, Senate races, and I want to ask you about the Zeldin race in just a second. You had a terrific interview with uh, probably the most polarizing U.S. Senate candidate in America. The people that love him really love him, and the people that uh, don't want him to win really don't want him to win. Herschel Walker, you were talking to him yesterday about how this race is shaping up.
14: Well, you know, right now I've always told my campaign what we want to do is run like we're behind. And that's what I'm doing right now. I'm out on a bus tour. I want the people to continue to see that I'm ready to serve them right now. And that's one of the things that Raphael Warnock did not do when he went to Washington. He forgot about the people of Georgia. And I think he showed that in the debate, but he was not prepared. He showed it when he right. got to Washington because he went with Joe Biden. And now I want the people to see there's a difference between he and I.
2: Um, you've followed this race probably more closely than anybody, and I think probably done more interviews with Herschel Walker than anybody. <laughs> What's your take on this race? Well, a couple of things. I I
18: don't get the go attacking his intellect. Al, I, I played a cut from Al Sharpton on MSNBC. He's like, you know, Herschel. I don't even think he read a book, let alone wrote a book. Excuse me. He's he's written two books, and if you know, part of the reason this controversy is, in it, he writes about. Uh, some of the mental challenges he's had in his life, talks about uh, the bullying he went through. It's r- written as if Herschel's saying it. I mean, no, number one, I understand the guy is one of the most successful businessmen uh, in the region. He set this up on his own. He's played and starred in five different sports and thousands of interviews. He's totally conversant, You might not like what he says, totally conversing in the issues. But instead of saying, well, Herschel Walker is too conservative or too inexperienced, they go, he's dumb. Really? He's dumb? I thought there was a time in America where where people were a little concerned about making ridiculous statements about minorities especially. Like, you and I are used to being called dumb. Uh, but if you go to—I used to, you know, get people telling me, uh, stop calling black quarterbacks athletic and white quarterbacks smart. Uh, why? I didn't even realize that. Well, that's it's just kind of insulting because— uh, as if black quarterbacks just are only good because they're athletic. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, that's a subtle thing that I never thought I could right. learn from that. So when I looked at Warren Moon, I never thought great athlete. I thought he was really smart. So I, Randall Cunningham was the first uh, black quarterback to have great success. He was, he used to be one of the, like his older brother, uh, a great running back in the open field. When people just say great athlete and the black community was a little upset. Can anyone stick up for Herschel and just say, if you don't like him, understood? but stop mocking him and saying he's dumb. I S- I played yesterday on TV with Herschel the whole uh, uh, the whole mock of him in the cold open in SNL where they basically show him not be able to get a sentence out. And you just sit there and go, "Okay, that's basically an attack." You know, it's not even humorous.
2: Right, you know, in general, I don't really see the value in folks calling other people an idiot, you know just yesterday yes, on this show there was uh, multiple people that said of, of Herschel Walker, and uh, I would say the same thing if they were saying this of Fetterman or anybody else they said, oh oh I, I'm not going to vote for Herschel Walker because he's an idiot I, I just I don 't see how that <laughs> I- elevates the discourse at all, and I think it says a lot more about the kind of person that would call someone an idiot than uh, than it does about the the object of that person's scorn I mean uh, it's very interesting now. Uh, Going into Tuesday, you know, it was about eight years ago. The Republicans ended up winning in 2014 these key statewide races in all these blue states. You had Maryland, a solid blue state. They elected a Republican governor. Massachusetts, uh, Illinois, Vermont, bluest of blue states. They were all electing Republican governors. Some people are saying... The same thing could happen this year. States like Nevada, Oregon, maybe even New York. What does your gut tell you about uh, whether or not their red wave is really going to sweep over these blue states? I'm fascinated by it. And that's going to be one of the themes Saturday
18: on One Nation is that, you know, people are like, well, how do you look at 400 plus House races and, you know, all these uh, governor's races and then the Senate and the. I, and I just say what I'm going to be looking at is if uh, people in America are fed up, Democrats are going to vote for Republicans. Republicans are going to vote for Republicans. Democrats have done nothing outside mansion and cinema to buck their horrible agenda. That did, in my view, that President Biden's putting forward. But if you get a governor in Oregon uh, for the first time in 40 years, it's a Republican. If you put a governor in New York City, in excuse me, New York State for the first time since George Pataki shocked the world and got three terms uh, in the 90s. If in Lee Zeldin. If you put a, uh, if you go out and uh, and put a Republican uh, in Illinois, absolutely. And then if you have put one in Wisconsin and flip that state back uh, to a Republican, which was trending to the left in a solo response to the pandemic, the horrible way in which they handled it, and the mass killings, uh, shootings, as well as the, uh, the, the Waukesha plowing down during a Christmas parade of innocent people and Uh, And the governor not doing anything, allowing the BLM riots to take over the streets and not uh, saying anything. So when you see Republicans start taking these seats, that's when it's going to, in my view, help the country. Because the Democrats will act like a normal party again, where we could remember the good old days when we baited Obamacare. We'd say, okay, health care is an issue. We just don't like, in my view, I didn't like that plan. But no one doubted health care was an issue. Now we're saying the border's not an issue, according to Democrats. Fentanyl is not an issue, according to Democrats. Crime is not an issue, according to Democrats. Uh, inflation is, uh, is, at least it's stabilized, according to Democrats. I'm going to myself, we're not even identifying on the issues. And the only thing that will change is when their experts sit around and said, what did we do wrong? And they do their autopsy. How did we lose these blue seats? Well, because we're not doing anything the country wants we're doing something
2: some liberal think tank prefers, and that doesn't help us. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens on Tuesday. Uh, maybe we can even chat Wednesday morning uh, to, as, as some of these results are coming in. I'll, I'll break format for you. That, <laughs> we'd appreciate that because uh, Alaska, Nevada, California, a lot of West Coast uh, states have uh, surprisingly competitive races. All right, uh, what radio, television today, what can we look forward to? All right. Um
18: we are uh got uh, Dan Crenshaw, uh Lee Zeldin's Eldon's joining me at eleven thirty-four. Catherine Limbaugh, she has a book out about uh Rush Limbaugh along with uh along with her brother uh David Limbaugh. So Catherine's gonna be joining us and talking about the impact in the book that they have out. Mark Teeson, of the Washington Post and Carly Shimkus, who uh cut her teeth at WABC with IMIS uh she'll be on Fresh Off Fox and Friends today. And I'm going to be talking about Don Balduck was attacked last night in New Hampshire. The general uh, is gaining, despite almost no establishment support in the Republicans. But the general is able to uh, to shake it off and move ahead. As, it sounds I'm going to talk like about you the think president's the, horrible speech yesterday.
2: The, it sounds like you think the Republicans threw in the towel too quickly on that New Hampshire race. Because, you know, he came out and said some things that made him seem unelectable.
18: And Schumer put millions of dollars in, so he won because they thought he was beatable. And when he came out and said, if I win McConnell, I'm, I'm going to vote against McConnell. So McConnell pulled all his money out. And now Rick Scott's scrambling to get it in. We had Ambassador Nikki Haley uh, campaigning with him yesterday. I think Tom Cotton's going up there again. He, Tom Cotton told me yesterday, he goes, listen, the numbers are unbelievable. He's within one point. So you talk about beating Maggie Hassan with an inexperienced brigadier general, and this is the one thing I think we discussed. If not, we should have. He's doing the Scott Brown approach. Right. All he did was hop in his car and drive around and, and convene town halls, whether it was two or 20, and now, now there's hundreds. And then he gets to the nomination, and he doesn't get the endorsement of Trump until two days ago. Trump looked at the numbers and said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help him. Uh, I could be the difference, just like Blake Masters in Arizona. He got he got he's probably going to get two percentage points because the Libertarian dropped
2: out. So that's how close all these elections are. It's really exciting to watch, Brian. It is always a treat to uh, to chat with you. Uh, I will I'll talk with you this time next Wednesday. We'll see we'll see how these uh, these races shaped up, and I
18: hope to see all listeners in person, including including uh, yours, Frank, uh, December second in Newark, New Jersey, the New Jersey Performing Arts Center. Appreciate you having me on.
2: Absolutely. People can get more details at com or get one of those personalized books. Thank you, Brian. Go uh, get it, Frank. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you can be heard at 800-848-9222. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in just a bit. But uh, Mike, who's in the Carolinas, has been patiently waiting. Hello, Mike. Oh, no problem, Frank. Uh, patiently
14: wait. My my smartphone is, is fully charged. Excellent. Uh, I was laughing. Uh, you know, topic of a conversation. Your show is great. And not to criticize you. I, I'm not. Don Larson pitched a, a perfect game in that World Series. And tough to do. Uh, but I'll tell you what. <laughs> I'm a baby boomer. Well, and, and a but, Mike, I,
2: I don't understand. What is the criticism? I wasn't taking anything away from Don Larson.
14: No, I'm just saying it was a perfect game.
2: Oh, I see. Okay, okay. I referred to it as a I, right. no hitter. Right. Gotcha. Okay. No Fair, big enough. Big Fair enough.
12: Fair
14: enough. Okay. Now, now, okay. Uh, round of applause for the baby boomers. I'm a baby boomer, and Top Sheet. Do you want it or not? I really could give it. You know what? I'm an old hardball player, and it's like, uh, but it's a topic of conversation, and uh, uh, you know. Uh, life goes on, and however you want to sleep, I was laughing, you want a sleeping bag or whatever the case may be uh go for it and Brian Kilmeade uh never called the show, but I will talk about uh, massive Peaker and this and that and uh all right, Frank, uh keep doing what you're doing and uh, I'm up in Long Island now, so uh for a couple of days oh'll so, uh,
2: we'll enjoy your visit we'll do. All right. All right, thank you Mike. Original Rick is in New Jersey. Hello Original Rick.
6: Yes, good morning, Frank. Good morning. Uh, I am sheet free. I don't wear I don't use any sheets on well, the bottom. I I use a microfiber blanket, you know what they are? They feel like velvet.
2: What? Well, you don't cover your mattress in a sheet?
6: No, I have a blanket over the mattress and then over that blanket I have a microfiber uh Cover, you know, that feels like velvet. It's like you're sleeping on velvet. What could be more luxurious Right, smell? okay,
2: so I understand. So you have uh, the mattress, and on top of the mattress, you have a microfiber blanket. Well,
6: first, first a blanket, a real blanket. Oh, okay, on top of the, b- you use a blanket, blanket where most
2: people would use the sheet, uh, then right. you're there, and then on top of you is a microfiber blanket. No,
6: no, 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 no. Over that blanket is a microfiber. I, the bottom is now a microfiber.
2: What okay. this is crazy? <laughs>
6: That's not crazy to me. And no then, wonder uh, you're uh, always
2: uh, awake talking to me because you can't sleep. You got such a bizarre setup uh, over may,
6: there. Maybe it may be like this. Listen. So then on top, I use a comforter, two comforters in the in the winter, because the comforter is nice and smooth and and, and puffy and and it just is very comforting. That's why they call it a comforter. And so I have a microfiber underneath me. I'm sleeping on velvet. And then on top, I have a nice, puffy comfort. It's, it's it's like being in a, a womb.
2: I, I, I can't take any more of this, Rick. Thank you. 800-848-9222. 15 seconds of fame. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side at
3: midnight. 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 Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe.
2: It is time now for you to be heard for 15 seconds. All you have to do is dial 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. It's time for...
0: The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Faith.
2: Neil!
8: Yes, make sure Carmine's first piece of bologna is kosher. Otherwise, it'll be full of ears, noses, and genitals.
2: Oh. Frank.
8: Yes, Frank. You tell the truth all the time. I'm going to tell you something. I rode
6: Lufthansa Airlines in 1973 and the former um, uh, Eastern Airlines. Do you wonder why the pilots are attempting to strike so badly now?
4: Victor. Uh, She may look and act like a local yokel, but when it comes to bail reform, Kathy Hochul is always non-vocal.
2: Fred. Uh... A good tip when you're going to put clean
7: sheets on, the fitted sheet is hard to put on. But if you lift up the corner, take a three-pound dumbbell, put it vertical under there. It holds it for you. Now you've got two free hands. Fit that sheet and go around, do the same thing in the four corners.
17: David. One in eight Americans between the ages of 18 and 64 are being killed by excessive alcohol consumption.
7: When are we going to have a discussion about binge drinking in this country? Thank you. Steve.
1: John.
11: Frank. Only you could make how people sleep with their sheets so interesting and funny. Thank you. God bless you for giving me a good laugh in the morning before work.
2: Well, uh, thank you, Evelyn. Uh, That's very kind of you. I appreciate that. That's a a good note to end that on. I want to also thank uh, Frank Fiore of Oakland, New Jersey, who who sent me an SMS text message. And you can SMS text message me as well at 816-8-MORANO. He said, go back and listen to the tape. I believe you said perfect game. You know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to, I wasn't sure, but I thought I did say that Don Larson pitched a perfect game. Um, I wasn't going to take anything away from Don Larson. I, I respect Don Larson. One of the most incredible feats in the history of baseball. Thank you. Uh, It's that left-handed mentality in that control room again. Always trying to eke their way into throwing me off my game. Unfortunately, they're successful more often than not. All right. Hey, you want to stay in touch, you can find me on Twitter at Frank Morano. You can email me, frankm at uh, wabcradio.com, And uh, if you want to find me on Facebook... Just go to Facebook.com slash morano Fan. Uh, that's uh, Facebook.com slash Moreno Fan. And uh, I will be back tomorrow. we got to Ask Frank Anything. Hopefully you come armed with some good questions. I'm working hard to get your prizes back. We'll let you know how that goes. Dr. Sky will be here tomorrow. Debbie Schlossel will do some movie reviews. And Anonymous will be here. Frank Moreno, good day.